This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest, the greatest research and information to help you lead a healthier, happier life. To know what's going on, for heaven's sakes. There's just so much info out there, and you can't know it all, honestly. You don't even need to know it all. Just the parts that matter to you and your family. That is the goal of this program. Welcome! And happy days. It's Tuesday, too, by the way. Hope your commute is going well. Uh, By the way, snow. There's snow reporting in the valley. I had a little sensor come off on my car. No. That showed... showed, I I didn't know what it meant because it's a new car. (laughs) But it uh, it beeped and it said it it showed snowflakes. Really? I don't know how it's detecting that. I think... uh, Wow. But it was... Hmm. The temperature was also 36 degrees or something. You're making this up. Anyway, great program for you today. Uh, What do you think about medical marijuana? I don't really. (laughs) Well, maybe you ought to start thinking about it because it's, you know, we we know it's a drug and there's illegal use of marijuana, but there's also medical marijuana and the legal use of marijuana. But the funny thing about it is we don't have a lot of research on the subject. I'm really interested to hear what this guest has to say because, yeah, that is kind of the first question that comes to mind when you hear about all these states legalizing marijuana is how much research has been done? Not a lot. And the Mm. interesting thing is, too, I mean, if you've ever known somebody with multiple sclerosis that was suffering through multiple sclerosis, it's horrible. So anything that could alleviate their pain, their suffering – I think would be wonderful, and that is one of the uses of medical marijuana. But they're just only a few years into the research, and it's hard to get money to research marijuana because it's a it's a drug that is so controlled by the government. It's hard to even get your hands on the drug to do the research. I could think of tons of people that would be willing participants in any study that would come up. <laughs> the problem is you need you need. The legal – I mean it's not even legal marijuana. You need people with the medical issues and to get enough of them in the study and then to get it funded, it's a difficult thing. So we will be speaking with um, a Harvard professor and medical marijuana researcher and and learning. What what are they finding out about the whole thing? Um, Dr. Stacy Gruber will be joining us plus, you know – there's always there's always empty news we can talk about. There's always, you know – Crazy headlines going on that are out there. There's usually a birthday here or there of somebody we could celebrate their birthday today. There are three today. Well, there are a lot more than three, but three that we're focusing on. Really? Mm-hmm. Should we focus on them right this minute? Let's do it. Sure. Let's. Okay. So we're going to play a little game. Yesterday's birthday was Babs, the Babster, Barbara Streisand. Yes. And to, uh, you, you tried to kind of trick me by playing her song thinking I wouldn't know it. But no. you didn't know that I listened to Babs every day. Still to this and day? And Barry Manilow. So those are the two, those oh, are the two people I listen to. All. <laughs> it's Mandy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, okay, try to, try, to, try to test me here. Okay, so you're going to hear three in rapid succession. Oh, boy. The first one's kind of loud, okay. so be careful. <clears throat> and uh, we'll see how you do. Hello to my little friend. You had me at hello. 
Wait, hello? B.O. problem? B.O. problem? Come on, guys. Do I have a B.O. problem here? <laughs> You're say, cheating. You're cheating right say now. Say hello to my little friend. Um, that's Pacino. Did you cheat? No. Um, you had me at hello is uh, the woman on the show. Yes, you're with, right so far. With the guy. Yeah. Who did the one thing. Um, can't remember her name. Renee Zellweger. Oh, Renee Zellweger. And I have no idea who's the B.O. kid. Terry? I didn't really hear it. So oh. Who's His name is Hank Azaria. Oh, yeah. And he does like a third of the voices on The Simpsons. Yeah, he's incredible. Hank Azaria. That was Mo Sislak. The character Moses is like taking a prank call from Bart Simpson. Say hello to my little friend. So it's Pacino, Zellweger, and Azaria. Azaria. Great law firm, by the way. Don't you remember those guys? I think they were involved in the um, the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, Pacino, Zellweger, and Azaria. Hmm. Okay, I got to write that down so I don't so I don't ever forget that. Good stuff. And plus, by the way, by doing the little game, you also learn some great quotes you can use. Throughout the rest of your day. Do I have B.O.? What was the phrase? Uh, B.O. problem. Hey, guys, <laughs> do I have a B.O. problem here? <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, so we'll go from um, the fun of Pacino, Zellweger, and Azaria to uh, medical marijuana. But first, let's get to Terry South, a nice bridge between the two, and uh, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? Sometimes a bridge too far. President Trump had a video conference call Monday morning with NASA astronauts uh, Peggy Whitston and uh, Jack Fisher, who are aboard the International Space Station, his next big goal in space, sending astronauts to Mars. Tell me, said Trump, what do you see as timing for actually sending a human to Mars? The astronauts broke the news that, uh, that Trump's own NASA bill forecasts it won't likely happen until the 2030s, which is a little awkward, as Trump was... Get trying to get information on when it would happen and when yeah. it could possibly happen, and his administration is already basically saying not till the 2030s. Not in my time period. Trump responded, "Well, we want to try and do it during my first term, or worse, during my second term." Wow! Get to Mars. Yeah. Uh, so we have to speed that up a little bit. He said. Everybody just kind of was quiet, like, <laughs> uh, "What?" Says Trump wants, at worst, to have a human on Mars by 2024. At worst. Yeah. Because that's an improvement of decades on NASA's current plan, which is the first Mars flyby, penciled by 2033, and no real plan for a human landing on Mars anytime soon. But Trump wants to get it done in the next eight years. Has he ever mentioned this? Now there's questions on whether he understands how far away Mars is. Is he mistaking Mars for the moon? Because they've talked about wanting to you know, probably try to shoot, go back to the you moon. You know, Mars, that, that white... <laughs> Does he know what planets are? I mean, Interesting. Yeah, lots of confusion yeah. on that one. On Monday, the Senate confirmed former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue to be the Agriculture Secretary in President Donald Trump's administration with a vote of 87 to 11. Wow. With all the other secretaries and all the issues they had, 87 to 11 is a win. Huge. 
women's agriculture. Purdue will be the first Southerner in the position in more than two decades. At his confirmation hearing in March, Purdue promised that he would advocate on behalf of rural American America despite the fact that Trump has proposed cuts to some farm programs. The role of agriculture secretary includes but is not limited to being in charge of around 100,000 employees and the nation's food and farm programs, including agriculture, subsidies, conservation efforts, and rural development programs. So we'll see what Mr. Purdue does. Uh, President Trump on Monday urged the United Nations Security Council to be prepared to impose new sanctions on North Korea, especially in light of concerns of the isolated regime could test its sixth nuclear bomb uh, yesterday. They actually had a oh, uh, wow. ar- artillery salvo they launched. Did they really, huh? As we moved a submarine into the area, which is interesting because we usually don't tell people where our submarines are. Here goes our sub. And, and Trump has talked about how he doesn't want to give away his... his uh, Military thoughts yeah, or his, whatever his stra- strategies, strategy. and they're telling people there's a sub in the area. Trump said at the White House meeting that he, the status quo in North Korea is also unacceptable. Uh, he had a meeting yesterday with 15 UN Security Council nations, including both Russia and China. The council must be prepared to impose additional, additional, and stronger sanctions on North Korea and uh, on their missile programs. So we'll see hmm. where they go hmm. there. As tensions are always high there, always. Uh, there's a robot. His name's Sally. Cute. Right? $30,000 robot. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, a dorm fridge size robot, if that okay, makes any like, sense. Okay, so like a small f- dorm fridge. Yeah, it makes you the most perfectly proportioned salad that you've ever eaten, says its creators. Mm. The, the company called Chow Biotics, <laughs> out of Silicon Valley, uh, Sally launches what could be a, f- a family of machines that will also prepare Chinese, Mexican, and Indian food. Until Chow Biotics finishes developing, developing a smaller home model, you're almost likely to uh, you're most likely to encounter Sally in a fast food restaurant, an office hotel, or a cafeteria. The machine uses sorted vegetables, diced in advance by humans, to mm-hmm. whip up any of more than a thousand salad combinations in less than a minute. Wow! Sadly, avocado is not on the list because it's too soft, and the machine destroys it. Mm. But it's all pre-cut, right? Yeah. So then, so really, all it does is mixes stuff, it sorts vegetables upon whatever you you know. So it's a thirty thousand dollars salad shooter. Yeah. Is it Sally or is it Sal E like Wall E? It's S A L L L Y. So Sally. Mm. So yeah. So it hmm. kind of sorts the vegetables yeah. into whatever bowl. And it does it in the right proportion, so you need three cucumbers here, and you need four tomatoes there, and but huh. everything's all pre-cut, so it's not really what's it doing? Yeah, it, As it, you, it's not even a salad shooter. That gives it too much credit. The right. shooter actually chops. It's just a salad like mixer. Yeah, but thirty thousand dollars. It's an expensive salad mixer, and but and I like their description of the um, what was it? The dorm size dorm fridge. size fridge. So a mini fridge. Yeah, why don't they just say mini fridge? Be- yeah, I mean, because all these people were in a dorm last year when they when they came up with the, the idea shooter. <laughs> then they mixer. rented an office park, and now they're making a robot. See again, and this made the news. Well, yeah, and we're reading it. Yeah, wow. I, I just, slow news day <laughs> a little bit. I just wanted you to go, huh? I just think, well, well, come on, we've got President Trump saying we're going to Mars or the Moon, whichever it is, in the next eight years, right? Like what is that? Twenty Pre- years ahead of schedule. Pre- President Bush had some uh, some lofty goals. He had some st- strategic. So then my question is: Are they goals, or are they just? Are you just kind of just 
saying things to make people feel good. Yeah. Well, they say that uh, you're not going to accomplish the goal unless you tell it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the first steps. Well, Kennedy said, we're going to the moon. Let's do that. And we did it. Right. So Trump says, we're going to that Mars thing. Let's do it. We'll get her done. Except everything in the budget he just put out cuts yeah. money from programs that would lead us to Mars. Well, yeah, that's a, just a technicality. So what are we gonna what are we gonna use to get to Mars? The the astronauts also talked about how it's gonna be a worldwide effort. It can't just be one country no, because right. the money, the technology. It's gotta go. Everyone's gotta go. I think what we'll find out in about a year, there'll be a lot of those salad mixer fridges things. Yeah. Those will be we'll be able to just maybe cut up one of those. Okay. Maybe, you know, use the parts from that. Save money there. Because that's going nowhere fast. I think Trump's only going to allow a man on Mars though. Why is that? Because that's where they're from. Oh, men are from Mars. That's yeah. right. I wonder if you read that book. He is. He does want to get to Venus, though. He says he has a hankering to get to Venus for some reason. Hmm. I think that's where the women are from. <laughs> men are from Mars. Women, women are from Venus. You haven't heard a lot of people talking about going to Venus. No, there's not much on Venus. I think Se- it's sexism. Mostly gas. So it's sexism. Hmm. Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about medical marijuana research. What really is going on? What does the science say, anyway? And uh, what does the future look like? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, last Saturday, a man in Utah was suffering from a severe form of pneumonia, and he died after being denied a double lung transplant. Uh, the reason? The University of Utah found marijuana, a Schedule One drug, in his system, which removed him from the transplant list. Uh, the university hospital said it does not do transplants for those with active alcohol, tobacco, or illicit drug use. Although the effects of tobacco and alcohol have been studied for several decades, where are we with marijuana research? And especially when it comes to a completely other side of this, the medical marijuana, um, where it could impact the, the lives so positively of so many people with medical issues. So we wanted to bring in one of the leading experts on the subject. Dr. Stacy Gruber is an associate professor um, and uh, at Harvard uh, Medical School, actually associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. She's also the director of the Marijuana Investigations uh, Neurodiscovery uh, research unit or project, and uh, we're honored to have you, Dr. Gruber. Thank you for being with us and taking this time. Well, thanks so much for having me. Talk to us about um, just the research that's going on. What I hear over and over, more and more states are passing laws to legalize marijuana, but the research, it seems like, in the field of marijuana is really pretty, it's pretty young. It's in its infancy. Yeah, you know, so for remember first, of course, that cannabis or marijuana has been around for thousands of years. Right. right? Our first documented use, 2700 BC. People have been using it for medicine at least that long. Yeah. Um, you know, and despite some of what we know with regard to recreational marijuana use, where I've spent more than 20 years looking at the effect on some of our youngest uh, and most vulnerable consumers. What we know about the impact of medical marijuana use is still, again, you're right, relatively little compared to what we know about recreational cannabis work. And, 
you know, there, there's an awful lot of ground to cover. I like to say that policy has basically outpaced science at this point, and it's difficult to study given some of our current restrictions. But clearly, we see a fairly large signal in lots of different conditions and, and symptoms where people and patients are reporting benefit uh, or improvement without a ton of clinically, you know, sort of sound empirical research at this point. So we need to we need to fill this gap pretty quickly. So let's let's just kind of let's give us the background, the history of the recreational use. I mean, but like in a minute, like because I, I really want to get into the medicinal side. But it's almost sure. like to break everyone's paradigm. Um, it's almost like you got to start with the recreational because that's where everyone's head goes. But overall, right. you've had some pretty amazing research talking about impulsivity and behavior, what the marijuana does to the brain. Maybe just give us a little summary of what we know about recreational use. Sure. And then let's get into it. A quick thumbnail sketch, as it were, right? So, again, you know, it's been around forever, and it was actually legal in this country um, until about 1940. Actually, 1970, it became illegal. But what we know about the effect of marijuana, for example, on the brain or behavior really does come exclusively from studies of recreational users. And in a nutshell, what we know is that people who use marijuana look different, quote unquote, than people who don't. What do I mean by that? They perform tasks slightly differently. Their brain structure and function uh, actually look different as well. There are some differences in academic achievement and performance. All of this is Um, still sort of hotly debated, right? There's lots of people who say they don't see any differences in marijuana users versus those who don't. But most of our work and that of my colleagues across the nation and really the the world suggest that there are differences associated with marijuana use specifically when people use early on. That is when the Mm. brain is neurodevelopmentally immature. Your brain's not done yet. And exposure to things like outside what we call cannabinoids, uh, may very well change the trajectory or the course of development. And that's really the more important point, not just are there differences between those who use and those who don't. Our research suggests that the greatest differences in cognitive performance, brain structure, brain function, really occur in those with the earliest onset of use before the age of 16, sort of mm. chronic, regular use before age 16. Okay. So, I mean, and again, like you were saying, we've been using it for a medicinal purpose, Mm-hmm. So, and inside, one of the things I loved about this article I read um, that you were involved in is the fact that um, marijuana inside of it are so many more things that we don't even know how they work. And so, maybe explain what what is going on inside of the uh, inside of marijuana. Sure, the plant itself is this rather complex, magical. Uh, I always call it the, the, the most complicated but, but seemingly magical plant we know. Um, every, we, we have this one term, marijuana, and it really does refer to anything that comes from the plant, cannabis sativa. There are hundreds of constituents, that is, you know, hundreds of different chemicals, including what we call phytocannabinoids. These are things that interact with our own brain and body system of receptors and chemicals. The main players here are things like Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, better known as THC. Mm, there you go. What, yeah, there, there you go. We hear about that one all the time, right? Exactly right. This is how we measure potency, and this is basically what recreational users are looking for, products that are high in THC because THC works very efficiently with our own endocannabinoid system, and we get an effect. So recreational users are looking for things high in THC to have um, an altered state of being, that high, that euphoria that lots of recreational users are looking for. Now, in addition to THC, there's lots of other constituents, including 
cannabidiol, the main non-intoxicating constituent of the plant. We've heard lots about it and the potential medical benefits of cannabidiol for a range of conditions and indications. But by no means is cannabidiol, as exciting as it is, and I'm very excited about it, by no means is that the only cannabinoid we should be interested in. You know, it's just yeah. it's not the case of these two main players and nobody else is on the stage. There are hundreds of others, cannabichromine, uh, tetrahydrocannabidivarin, cannabigerol, cannabinol. You, we had this exhaustive list and really very little research in other cannabinoids thus far. So there's lots going on in the plant, and there are many who say you really want a whole plant-derived product from a medical perspective to give you the full what's referred to as the entourage effect. That is the sort of synergistic way in which these chemicals work with each other. Mm. See, no wonder you're just barely getting into it medically because <laughs> there's too much there. There's, there's a lot there, and, and there's lots of problems with something that's, quote, a plant. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to have what we call consistency. What do we need in medicine? When you buy Advil in uh, Provo, it's the same Advil that I buy in Boston, right? right? So we don't have any question. If I buy OG Kush, which is a strain of cannabis, very popular, I might add, in Boston or even you know, in my county in Boston, it's going to look or, or be different from OG Kush that's... Um, It's grown in other parts of my state and definitely from the West Coast or the Midwest. There are lots of variations. And so in order to standardize these things, we have to set up some parameters. That's the hard part. And then I guess another dilemma you're running into is because it's been uh, deemed a Schedule I drug by the government, it's almost impossible for universities to get the marijuana they need to do the studies. Yeah, there are certainly some extraordinarily um, challenging restrictions that are currently in place. We can currently really only use products that are sourced by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. Um, And while NIDA has expanded their portfolio, that is the number of products available, because we're very interested, of course, in studying products that people are actually using. So we have to study products that reflect, you know, current levels of potency and current what we call cannabinoid constituent ratios, you know, how much of THC versus how much CBD and other other chemicals are present. Um, you know, NIDA doesn't have an exhaustive supply. It's not as if they can produce everything. So that's another inherent limitation in addition to the fact that it's, it's Schedule One, We don't have the ability to go to other places, to go to a dispensary and say, you know, I'd like to get enough marijuana or cannabis to do this study. Um, I, you know, I'd like to buy X amount of this. You can't really do that these days. That's that's a a very very large obstacle for us currently. Is it the potency is is you know off the charts? We we see people routinely who are coming in with flower product, conventional flower product, where the THC level, that main constituent that's responsible for the psychoactivity, is north of sixteen or eighteen percent. National average is about twelve percent. That's up from four percent in '95. So that's a two hundred percent increase in about ten years. Is so even if you were in a, a state that has legalized marijuana, could you use that marijuana for your research? So, because you have national grants, I'm assuming you have other. I mean, it's got to be so complicated. It is complicated. It's a great question. And federal funds really cannot be used to study things like that unless you're getting your products sourced from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Last year, the DEA relaxed the restriction for the um, single source requirement. So other um, entities can now apply for the ability to, to supply researchers like me with products. It'll be a long time in coming. Um, 
you know, and, and that's another frustration. So, yes, it's legal in my state, for example, for medical use and <laughs> very recently for recreational use. That doesn't mean that I can administer, as a clinical researcher, cannabis to my study subjects. Mm. The, the, the large uh, MIND program, Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery program that we started a little less than three years ago, the first study is designed to look at patients who are using medical marijuana. It'd be great if we could give them products, but we can't. So instead, we assess them before they start any regimen, and then we follow them, and we have their samples of their most commonly used products analyzed by an outside lab. That's as close as I can get. Mm. And Okay, so you have to help us dispel the myth, because it seems <laughs> like a lot of conservative people that would never go near the drug sit there and think, okay, so everyone's going to either do it illegally, now some states are legalizing it, and then all medical marijuana is is a way to have your doctor write you a prescription so you can legally do an illegal drug everywhere else or whatever. So so tell us how it's really changing lives. I mean, I've I've been with a lot of people that have multiple sclerosis and yeah. which is such an ugly yeah. uh, kind of existence for these people, but to know that medical marijuana helps there, where else does it help? How does it help? So it helps across a number of conditions and indications, and it's really quite staggering. And, and you're right, for folks with um, MS and spasticity and related conditions, actually the, the National Academy of Sciences put out a paper at the end of, or I think at the middle of January, 395 pages about the health effects of cannabis. And what they found, and this shocked some people, was that there was conclusive or substantial evidence that cannabis or marijuana was effective for improving patient reported MS-related spasticity, so that's, that's one, mm. uh, for the treatment of chronic pain in adults, that's two, um, for uh, the use of uh, sort of prevention of nausea and vomiting-related symptoms as a function of chemotherapy, that's three, and more recently, the sort of lead author of that paper has come out and said, we do find evidence for the use of medical cannabis in intractable seizure disorders, specifically those with pediatric origins, so kids with Dravet syndrome or Lennox-Gastaut. So, that's four. Wow. Um, that, that the National Academy is an independent group of scientists hand-selected to sort of investigate what is the deal here. Um, that's what they came up with. And many have questioned the current status as a Schedule One substance based only on that set of findings. You know, if by definition the Schedule One substance means there is no accepted medical value, and yet you have a national report that just said, There's, here we yeah. have these <laughs> we have Four these examples, yeah. Yeah, so so that's a good question. We also hear reports of, you know, our patients in our medical marijuana study uh, use very often for anxiety, for PTSD and related symptoms, for sleep. Um, there's there's a range of indications that people are using these products for, and they vary with regard to whether they're THC heavy or CBD heavy, no THC at all, just a little THC, um, whether they're vaporized or smoked, whether they're used um, sort of sublingually under the tongue or ingested as edibles, there is such a range of, of products available and modes of use. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very comprehensive and complex landscape currently. Yeah. Um, and people are using it for lots of different things that you might not imagine. Some people are using it for skin-related conditions. They have these topicals that are great for different types of rashes. Huh. But, you know, I think the thing that got the attention of the nation um, sort of more recently, a few years ago, really was the use of um, things like high CBD or cannabidiol-based uh, products for intractable seizure disorders. Charlotte's Web, created by the Stanley Brothers out in Colorado, really changed the way we think of this. You have a child who had 200-plus seizures a week go from 
not being able to walk or talk or function as a normal, healthy five-year-old, to no seizures, hmm. walking, talking, playing with her twin sister. These, these are amazing and compelling stories. And I, I would challenge anybody who isn't made of wood to right. you know, look at some of these videos and say, yeah, you're right, we shouldn't, we shouldn't at least explore this as a potential therapeutic well, um, and, option. And nobody seems to be making any noise about... Um, amphetamines being used to to handle or help children with uh, ADHD and yet yeah. that's you know on the street it's, they're worth a lot of money and mm-hmm. and and then we also have all the people um with uh what's the word what's the drug that opiates? all opiates all the all, yeah. all the opiate extreme stories we're hearing lives being destroyed by opiates so we've always been using a medicinal version of really difficult even scheduled two drugs Mm-hmm. Or schedule one drug. So, so it's isn't it the same thing? Well, and, and it's funny actually because when we think of things like you know the opiate epidemic, remember those are lar- those are not schedule one; those are schedule two. That's two, right? Dies across the nation, I think, every 19 minutes from an overdose of opioids. We are in the middle of a national epidemic. This is something we must must get um, a leg up on, right? And actually, interestingly, from you know, our perspective, and we've seen this in states with medical marijuana laws, there were fewer prescriptions for opiates written. Hmm. There are fewer opiate-related overdoses. And in our study, for sure, we see people using uh, significantly less opiate-based product over time uh, once they start a medical marijuana or cannabis regimen. Will that hold up for everyone across the world? I don't know. It's too soon to tell, but we've seen a 42% reduction in opiate use between baseline when people aren't using medical cannabis or medical marijuana, and after three months of treatment, that's a big drop. We also see a drop in benzodiazepine use and in antidepressant use. So these are these are important things, and, and you're right. We don't see the same level of outrage at this point, although there certainly was initially with the use of stimulants in kids with ADHD. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Uh, Stacy. stick with us. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Stacy Gruber, director of The Mind Project and uh, also a professor, associate professor of uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Medical marijuana research, um, so much we're learning. There's more in that little drug than just the euphoria creating you know, mechanisms. There's so much more, um, even stopping seizures, minimizing, you know, spasticity, chronic pain, nausea and vomiting. (sighs) Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll come back just giving you the information, helping you understand what's going on out there in the big world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the show today, one of the leading researchers uh, on the subject of medical marijuana research, Dr. Stacy Gruber joins us, and um, we're honored to have her. She is the director of the Mind Project, and the Mind Project is the Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery Project at McLean, uh, McLean Hospital in the suburb of Boston. And uh, Stacy also is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School with her clinical focus in the application of neurocognitive models and multimodal brain imaging to better characterize neurobiological risk factors. Yikes! Uh, Stacy, thanks for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. This, um, again, we're calling you from a very conservative university in a very conservative state, but even our own state government here in Utah has been researching the medical marijuana use. Mm -hmm. And um, so so help us, I mean, because there really is so little we know about the medicinal side, but we also see... I mean, people are smart. We've been, like you said, we've been using this for thousands of years, um, one way or another. And we're really just all trying to medicate. <laughs> it's all the same thing. It's, but it, it, I like the idea that we have medical research behind uh, a lot of these decisions. Are, are, how, what, how do you, how do you, how do you kind of balance it between the use of you know people using it out in the streets and maybe not using it? in the appropriate ways or healthier, healthy ways, and, and your research? How do you balance it? So first, actually, you know, I think um, it's important to make the distinction between recreational and medical marijuana use. And very often people lump them together because, as you said earlier, a lot of folks think that medical marijuana is just a way for people, you know, once you're certified, that's basically just a free pass to use something that's illegal legally. Right, right, right. I got to tell you, so I, I think I'm one of the only researchers who actively studies both recreational and medical marijuana use. And, you know, there's no question. Our recreational consumers say, look, I use because I want to chill out. I want to feel good. I want to, you know, I want to get high. Our patients repeatedly say, I don't want to get high. I just want to feel better. Mm. And that's a big, big difference Huge. because... You know, when you look at intention for use and ultimately, you know, the way that folks use and the products that people use, that's an important distinction. They are not the same. The products may be the same. You know, the plant from which these right. things are derived is the same. But intention for use, uh, absolutely different. So it's important to keep that in mind. And I have, to t- I have to say, I expected to see more people coming through who are sort of what some have referred to as the weekend warriors, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I have a terrible back pain, and so I need to have a certification right away. Um, we're not seeing that. We're seeing people who have had some real difficulties in their lives with very chronic conditions, whether it's pain or PTSD, um, sleep-related issues, anxiety. And that's, I think, a very important distinction relative to those who are really just looking to change their current state of being. We already see that, right, in emergency rooms where people are trying to get opiates and they're going in faking pain. But wouldn't it be powerful if you could get the derivatives out of marijuana that would actually uh, maybe not be the psychedelic – I don't know what the word would be, but the sure, kind of – Psychotropic, sure. Yeah, the psychotropic kind of effect, but but might still be able to allay the PTSD which is a horrible, torturous thing for someone that's going through it. Right. And, and you know, that's exactly what some of us are, are trying to do. You know, the very first study that will assess the use of smoked cannabis or, or marijuana for PTSD is currently underway. Um, that's using NIDA-based products, um, and that's, I think, very important. It's great that there's finally one study that's underway. We have a study that's dedicated specifically to veterans um, because they're a largely mm. understudied population, and these these people are desperate for things to treat lots of different symptoms, including, and very importantly, PTSD. And what what people have reported anecdotally is that they do feel better after using cannabis. It, it, is it true? Is it not true? And by the way, you know, what, what affects the change? What types of products? And, you know, it's very, very early on, but I'm very encouraged to see that so many people are interested in exploring this because, you know, the use of products like, let's say, Charlotte's Web, uh, things that are high in cannabidiol and very, very low uh, in THC or, or in some cases have no THC, if these products are efficacious for helping the symptoms, 
then there really shouldn't be any question about whether or not people could be allowed to use them. Mm. Oh, yeah. You, you, you bring up such a good point because when I, when I think of medical marijuana, even a bill, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so now we're going to turn this into like Cheech and Chong's medical <laughs> office. And you, but really, I, for the people that have found um, – like the family with the child that had the seizures in Colorado – and how hard it was for them to get their marijuana, right. um, and, and then even to have to get it in an illicit way mm-hmm. instead of through your medical professional and actually diagnosed properly. And right. it's, there's, it's, there's something, too, just about the shame of having to do it in, a, in an illegal way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a huge problem. And, you know, I use the, the, story, the, the example of Charlotte Figge as literally one example. There are countless thousands of what we refer to as medical marijuana refugees. These are families with very, very ill children who move from wherever they happen to live in the United States because they cannot get access legally to products that they are fairly convinced will help their children. And so they, they move to Colorado or to um, Washington or other places, primarily, I think, Colorado. And, you know, that's a pretty big transition and a very big hardship in many cases where, you know, there's no infrastructure and financially it's a real problem. And I think if you look at the, you know, sort of the outcome when people are able to actually treat their kids, and I'm not suggesting that this works absolutely in the same way for everybody, but it's certainly compelling enough to make us need to take a step back and really look at it. There are clinical trials of things like Epidiolex. Epidiolex is a GW Pharma uh, manufactured product, and it is basically a purified extracted form of cannabidiol. So kids are given this product. Um, again, it's, it's not a whole plant uh, product. It, it, they really just extracted out the cannabidiol. And those studies are showing some very compelling clinical improvements as well, perhaps different data from the, the kids who are taking sort of the whole plant-derived products. But at least we're moving forward. We have mm. some clinical trials where we're really looking at children, you know, in the right way, in an empirically sound way where it's a real trial and they're getting the same products over time and people are assessing them, which is, I think, a, a, a giant step forward. Is, is the medical profession ready for this? Or are, like, all the early adopters, like, potheads? Um, because I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about doctors and if all of a sudden if, if they opened up the state of Utah to medical marijuana use, you'd still have a bunch of doctors, I would assume, that aren't educated in it, that don't understand the dosing. And, um, and how, do you, how do you roll that out? And, and is the research there medically to even roll that out effectively? It's a, another great question. I think in Utah you have the ability to utilize CBD products only for uh, – seizure-based disorders in kids. I, okay. think, I think that's your current Utah-based law. Um, but a great question. You know, there are certainly many in the medical profession who are not necessarily convinced that this is a, an area that they want to be involved in. They worry about restrictions and potential punitive action at the federal level. This is still illegal oh, yeah, at the right, federal right. level. Federal level. So oh, and then, by the way, and then with a new Secretary of Justice, Sec- Justice Department, that, uh, or Attorney General, that might fight it. Right. I think there's so much that's unknown. This is a, a really, it, it's sort of um, an unknown territory at this point, right? It's like the Wild West. We don't really know what to expect. Again, we have federal and state laws at odds with each other. And many practitioners do not want to risk uh, their extraordinarily valuable medical license or their reputation 
in an mm. area that is seemingly really still very green. Haha, <laughs> get it? Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's true, and I, I don't blame them. I think this is a very, very complex and difficult area, and it's one that we have to navigate cautiously, and we have to use the very best information that we have, I think, to inform the public, whether it's recreational or medical use, how best to use these products safely and wisely and to understand the potential risks as well as the benefits because nothing is all good or all bad. Right. Where do you see we'll be in 20 years based on the research that's out there? So, you know, that's another great question. I think um, so much of this will come down to what happens you know, sort of in the short term in terms of the the scheduling of of cannabis. I think a lot of people are very concerned about continued restrictions with regard to research. So it's very difficult to research something that's a Schedule I substance, especially when you have a single source supplier as we currently do. Now that's going to change, so maybe that will open the floodgates for lots of different uh, research opportunities. My hope is that in 20 years we'll know a lot more about you know, the optimal ways in which people can use cannabinoid-based products, whether they're whole plant or single product extractions, for a range of indications and how best to use these things without, in many cases where it's not desirable, the psychoactive effects. You know, there, there's some evidence suggesting that if you pre-treat individuals with cannabidiol, um, even if you use a THC-based product, you're not going to have the same level of intoxication hmm. as you would have if you'd only used the THC product. That's very important uh, because it really opens the door to lots of different mechanistic explorations. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I, I think really we, we need to be focused on going forward. Yeah. Well, and again, too, boy, what if we just didn't tell – I mean – the only reason that people are worried about it, too, is because they they know it's coming from marijuana. But people are putting Botox in their body, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. And right. But right. That, that also created a problem at first. Um, right. I guess most of us don't know where the, the, the drugs in the, that we're taking for heart medicine or for whatever, we don't know where they're coming from. But it's just when you call it a cannabinoid, it's like it doesn't seem as bad. But when you call it reefer, it's all of a sudden, it's horrible. Well, marijuana is really a fairly pejorative term, right? It's a negative term. Cannabis really is the more correct term for anything that comes from the plant. But, you know, again, another great point. Lots of people use products. You know, I I had somebody who drove a patient to an appointment not long ago who said, oh, I was so anxious before I got on the highway. I had to take a Xanax. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure you really want to, (laughs) you know, hop behind the wheel right after you've done this. Um, But that's legal. And, you know, that's not necessarily something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Of course, those of us, you know, involved in substance abuse research or substance misuse research, we always think about that. You know, this is certainly not um, in a class by itself. People use and misuse lots of different substances. And cannabis is, you know, simply one extraordinarily complex plant that may have extraordinary therapeutic potential, as well as some areas of concern for people primarily who are vulnerable to the potential negative effects. We just need to be mindful of it. Yeah, so true. Dr. Stacy Gruber, thank you so much for your, your wonderful research, your insight, and educating us, helping us at least understand this so we don't immediately just have the knee-jerk reaction. This is changing lives for good, and it needs to be controlled. It needs to. We need to make sure that, you know, people are using this product effectively. Again, Dr. Uh, Stacy Gruber is... Um, 
is the head of the Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery, or MIND Project. Also, uh, she is um, an associate professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and uh, doing what she can to just understand and continue the research in uh, medical marijuana. We'll take a break. Come back, wrap up. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick uh, Stick with us. We're here to help you get the information you need. We'll be right back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, it really is. It's We are so afraid of what we don't know. And, again, drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. And we see that with the opiate epidemic. So many people's lives and families are being destroyed by um, opiate use. And, and yet, you know, we keep just handing out these opiates as a painkiller, as a pain reducer. And... We're terrified that marijuana will become, I guess, the same thing. Um, in, in reality, though, there it's it is the, the research on it is is pretty young, and we're learning a lot. And it's it, there's a way to break up the drug itself, as we just learned, into so many different components that you can actually use the benefits of it just to simply stop seizures. And if you know somebody that has seizures, that can't get a driver's license because they have seizures, they can't control their seizures, or a boy that's having 200 seizures a day or 200 seizures a week, you all of a sudden, it dawns on you that, hmm, this isn't, this isn't a way to live. So we probably need to let science do what science does. And let's also educate the fact that the other research about recreational use that Stacy was finding is it's not healthy for kids with developing brains. We've even found and had many guests on the show that say the, the, the brain is developing till the age of 25. So drug use, I would even say to 25 is probably not, shouldn't be in the cards, marijuana use especially, right? So how do we get over our fears and how do we go about having laws passed and doing so intelligently instead of just reacting and reacting to each other? It's not an easy thing, but at some point, there, all of these things on the earth, all of the plants, all of the fruits and everything we've been given is here to be utilized effectively and there are healthy ways to do it. And so um, instead of just rebelling and being fearful about it, let's just learn. And once we learn, let's educate. Let's share it with each other and not just always react to the fears we have. Um, We'll we'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. And we can do it, each of us, just by focusing where we have influence. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to hour number two of the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry and, of course, Jeffrey. The gang is all here. We're all here. And excited about today's... uh, 
topic, we're going to be talking about how how it may not be survival of the fittest. Well, thank goodness, because I'm not as fit as I'd like to be. It might be survival of the kindest. Yes! Yes! And really, when you think about uh, evolution, is it, the, is it the strongest that always has survived? Or was it the most socially aware? The one that could get along with others? That could gather the rest of the herd together to kill the evil, mean one that was harming everybody? What would have given you the advantage in a tribal community being just physically strong or being emotionally and socially strong? Well, according to the latest research, probably emotionally and socially strong. How strong was the person that made it, that did the research? Were they physically strong or just like emotionally strong? They're emotionally strong. Yeah, 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 okay. But see, but think about it. But not just even emotionally. But I guess what I'm saying, how much can he lift? No, but here's, no, the, okay. here's the key. If I could get seven people together, we could stop a guy that can lift a lot. I don't know. We could outthink you. We could outplay you. We could outwork you. I have some comic books that could uh, (laughs) See, but that's that's why superheroes are such a farce. No. They're not real. Some of them are. Because if you notice so many of them, they're not good socially. They all live alone in a cave house with a butler that will do anything they say. They're strange. They have a little sidekick, a young man that is gullible and willing to just be the servant. That wears tights. And they all wear tights. None of this happens socially. You have to be a symbol, Matt. You can't just be a man. You have to be a symbol to unite people. That was taken almost verbatim from Batman Begins. Yes. Really? That was creepy. Uh, So we'll get to all that fun ahead. Um, How maybe being a little bit more compassionate may be your key to survival. We'll get to that fun. Plus, of course, um, some uh, headlines, empty news, we call it. Not all news is, you know, full and robust of facts and information. Some of it's empty. And some of it's from the Matt Townsend Show, which is what we call it, empty news. Also today, we're going to be doing a little um, test. We're losing a lot of our producers as they go away to college. They go to internships. Well, they're at college. Well, I mean, they, well, yes. Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Some are going to other schools. Some oh, okay. are going to other programs. Yeah. Some are graduating. Mm. Some are getting jobs. I heard today some are getting married. And some are getting married. Did some, you know that? Did you know about this? No. About marriage for People some, get married? That were they're working for us. They're not sharing this information at all. No, you didn't. Okay, I got to find out then. Before this person leaves, we have to we have to talk to them. Holy cow! You are a marriage expert. There's love in the air, and we ought to have him on the air before we do that. Yeah, his exit interview. So his exit away. interview. His as exit interview. If it is true that this is happening, does his name does Palikiko? his name rhyme with Raven Royal? Yes. <laughs> That's the rumor, so I have to okay. confirm it, and then we'll, well try rumor to get an, an interview. Uh, so we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. But we're gonna because all these people are leaving. We have some. We're gonna test some other ideas about potential show ideas. We're gonna run through some of those. Jeff's got a million of them. Well, we've great. been we've been having people bang down the door trying to become regular contributors on the show. Yeah, and, and we'll have to we'll, we'll have to sort through all of our choices because there's there's so many choices. Car tip Friday. Car tips? Car tips, like changing your oil and you know, stuff uh, like that. No. That was one. I just – I kind of shot it down. I was like, eh. Car tips. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Just take it to the jiffy. Yeah, dude. have some guy do it. Yeah. 
We'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Donald Trump signaled on Monday, according to a report in Politico, that he would be fine with a delay in a showdown over the planned wall at the U.S.-Mexican border until September, possibly averting a potential government shutdown this week as his presidency reaches the 100-day mark. He reportedly made the remarks while speaking to a group of conservative media outlets during a reception at the White House. Trump, however, did not give up on the plan to get Congress to fund the wall's construction. Democrats previously said they would not vote for spending legislation to keep the government open if it includes funds for a wall. Arkansas authorities carried out the country's first back-to-back execution since 2000 on Monday night, executing Marcel Williams after a judge issued but then quickly lifted a temporary stay. Another inmate, Jack Jones, had been executed hours earlier, and because of some complications, lawyers tried to get the second execution stopped, but after a stay was issued, was soon lifted, and the second execution moved forward. Arkansas, which until this month had not executed an inmate since 2005, has been embroiled in controversy over its plans to execute eight inmates by the end of April when its lethal injection drugs expire. Members of the Writers Guild of America, this this may be the most important story of the day, Matt. What? Members of the Writers Guild of America reportedly voted in favor of authorizing a week, uh, authorizing a week, merely a week before the union's contract is set to expire May 1st. The Guild said, according to a report in the LA Times, 96% of the 6,300 writers who cast ballots voted in favor of strike authorization. Negotiation between the Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers could still lead to an agreement to avoid the strike. The negotiations are set to resume today. The Alliance said in a statement on Monday that its members are committed to reach a deal at the bargaining table that keeps the industry working. This is your TV. This is your movies. This is everything. Come on. Everything you use to escape life. I mean, sure, North Korea is a threat, but this is a bigger threat. Our TV is at stake here. <laughs> Holy cow. What will happen to Netflix? Absolutely. Well, that's the, that's a good thing is there's plenty to go back and look at, but new Not things. Not if you've seen it all. Right. <laughs> if you've watched everything on there, you're in you're in dire straits here if they go on strike. Yeah. So anything you can do out there, please please make sure that happens. And then uh, finally something to help parents, the Max Motor Dream Crib. Huh? commissioned by Ford's Spanish Design Studio. It is a stationary cot that simulates the relaxing sounds and motions of a car ride. How it works is the parent collects the sensory inputs of a car ride on a phone app, then downloads those inputs into the Max Motor Dream Crib, which uses a gentle rocking motion in addition to an engine hum and LED lights to give the baby the feeling of riding in a car. Oh, boy. Ford says the parents lost a total of about 44 days of sleep during the first year of late-night feedings and teething pains. Often the best way to calm a child down is to take them for a car ride. But that can be risky with tired parents behind the wheel early in the morning. Right. So you take your app. It records how your car functions and moves and all that. And then you download that info into the, the baby crib. And then the crib mimics that so you don't have to actually take your kid and put him in the car in the middle of the night. Can you sign Can you sign a lease on the crib so Apparently, you just pay for like a three-year, 12,000-mile lease? It, it may just be an, an addition to your next Ford purchase. Who knows? So this is what the baby hears. Yeah, and the baby just falls asleep. Oh, well, not yeah. this, not this, this part. This is nice. Not this part. Yeah, I could see how this could lull him to sleep. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, and then, then the crib just kind of rocks back and yeah. forth. Bounces off the inside of the car, apparently. Huh. Wow. <laughs>
Now, I feel like my baby should be buckled in, though. Well, I mean, you're going to buckle the kid in, but may, I don't know. In the crib, should they be buckled in? Yeah, Is for gonna, sure. And maybe wear a helmet. Depends on how reckless a driver you They're are. They're going to drive like that. No. Well, it says, as for how awesome this idea, if it, if it actually will show up at your like, local baby store, be ready for purchase. It says, for now, the Max Motor Dream is a one-off pilot. Oh. But following numerous inquiries, the company is considering putting the unique cot into full-scale production. Hmm. You know, it's interesting how all these things are coming out that you didn't even know you needed. Mm. Like, wouldn't you rather just have like a Benadryl cot that just <laughs> is like a nice, warm, hazy fog cot that just makes you feel like you're floating? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Like, I'd rather have that. The fog of cough medicine. Yeah. Yes. Just anything that, yeah. And if you're going to make a cot, you could also do the dryer cot. Mm. That just like is, has the vibration of a dryer or a washing machine that just kind of whoa, 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 whoa. so not something that actually simulates being spun inside a no. dryer. Okay, like they say, babies that are colicky, you put them on the washer and or the dryer, I guess, whichever one that makes the most movement. We have a swing. Oh, do you? Great. Yeah. I mean, why not just get the swing baby yeah. swing cot? Turn the music on. Yeah. There's a little like uh, you can a little vibrator mm-hmm. function you can push, and it kind of ro- that would work for anybody though. My wife wants one. I yeah. do she too. wants a full size adult baby swing because it looks so comfortable. <laughs> Can't you see her little legs kicking yeah. out out of sight? It's just great. <laughs> what about just the church pew cot? Because um, how many people have fallen asleep in church? They really they need just to, need some like person talking in a monotone. They need to update that design because those are very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter how uncomfortable they are because we still somehow manage to fall asleep. You still fall asleep. How about, Terry, you could do the driving the car um, cot okay. where the child's driving on a freeway simulator and they just fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. That'd, you that'd you could great. do that one. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a really good one. See, we could make up more ideas and maybe better ideas. You don't think that's a good idea? Uh, sure. How much do you think it would cost? They don't have a price. Oh, they'll charge four hundred. Well, because it's a crib, cribs yeah. are four or five hundred dollars, aren't they? Yeah, and there's an app, right? There's you got to get the so, app, but yeah. then you have to go get your own ambient sound, I guess. Right. So, yeah, it'll be five, six hundred bucks. Totally not worth it. I think we could do it a lot cheaper. Because your kid grows out of it, then what? Yeah, then what? The only way to make that work is to have more kids. Well, and then you know that kid when he's going to be a horrible driver when he's a teenager, right? He's going to always fall asleep. He's going to hear the engine noise, knock him straight out. I could record the noises for you at a fraction of the cost. See, that's what we got to do. Ah, good times. Hey, you know, as summer approaches, the Matt Townsend Show continues to lose student contributors to internships and jobs. This means no more House of Bows, no more Caitlin Thomas, pretty soon no more Leanna Tan's tangents. So in order to fill these vacancies, Jeff Simpson has started taking pitches from potential contributors. Jeff, do you have uh, one for us to screen today? Yeah, and I want you to keep an open mind. Um, of this is be- never a good way to start anything. I know. Okay, well— yeah, I, I heard this This guy came to me, and it sounds exactly like something that would show up on BYU Radio. Really? Yeah. So, so the, I want Don to listen to it because he may give it the green light as its own show. Forget oh, about its own segment. So it may he not might, be our segment. He might want it to be its own show, but here it is. Cool. Hello, and welcome to The Happy Garden with Bob Moss. Today, we're going to be talking about a practice that is absolutely necessary in regards to maintaining a healthy and happy garden. 
Now, many of you already know the benefits of talking and singing to your plants. I myself like to recite French poetry, but you are probably unfamiliar with plant therapy. Now, this involves not only talking to your plant, but more importantly, listening in order to get to the root of the problem. I will now demonstrate on one of my favorite plants, the rhododendron. Her name is Patty. Patty, how are you today? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, let's talk about the little incident from yesterday, when little Billy from across the street stomped on you repeatedly. How did that make you feel? I see. Well, can you think of anything you did to provoke such an attack? Ah, now you see that may have been what set him off. Might I suggest we arrange a meeting so the two of you can work out this issue? Is that it? Is that it? Yeah. Hmm. Hold on. This, that that's the pitch. That's the 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 idea is to have a show with like a plant therapist. See, now I thought this would be right up your alley because you could relate to, you know, just listening. Oh, yeah. Because we, we all think it's important to talk to our plants, but how about the listening part? They're hard to listen to, you know? They Some don't. people just don't put in the time, Matt. I don't know if I like Bob Moss. So Bob Moss, the happy garden. Hmm. Don't worry. We've we've got other options that we can choose from throughout the week. We'll, we'll so throughout the week we'll be testing other things. Yeah. So we don't have to go with Bob. No, but you know, I I I think Don's going to come de- running down the stairs any second, demanding that we turn this off. Um, Terry made a really good point. I think Terry said he heard this on another uh, channel. Yeah, there was another station. network that was doing this type of thing. Yeah. Really? It's kind of known for this type of thing. But listening – so they listen to their plants? Well, just sort of like boring, pointless Hold segments. Hold on. Bo- oh, don't say boring. Whoa. Don't say boring. Oh, that was mean. He is listening because he knew we no, were going to be it – not, It's not boring. Let's just say it's, it's – it's, I like to just use the word interesting. <laughs> OK. That's more interesting. Pass, that's passive aggressive. Good job. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get back. We'll get back. Just, just tell Bob we'll get back to him on that. Okay, fun times. Um, again, trying to make the show the best we can make it, and we can only do it, you know, I guess a lot of people would do this behind the scenes. These are free contributions. We're very transparent. We like to do these things in front of y'all because we want you to be a part of these. Free content. Okay, we'll have more with Bob Moss later. Um, but uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, survival of the kindness Stick with us. Interesting insights into human life. Survival of the fittest is a term often used to describe how we should pursue success. It's the idea that we have to work alone and look out for ourselves in order to advance in our lives. In reality, it should be survival of the kindest. 
Cultivating a culture of compassion and support in our environment promotes more success than an individualistic view. This culture can also uh, lower blood pressure and depression, build resiliency towards stress, and boost self-esteem and morale. Here to talk with us more about the benefits of this compassionate approach is Dr. Chris Cook, a professor of political and social science at Western Connecticut State University and the author of the book, The Compassionate Achiever. Chris Cook, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Matt, thanks for having me on. And that word interesting that you guys were using before, that covers a wide gamut. Doesn't it? Totally. <laughs> the, the problem is I use it all the time. And so I, <laughs> some people, sometimes it's a negative thing, but, you know, it's, it's just really interesting. Um, good to have you with us, Chris. Thanks for your time and, um, and this insight. I love th- because, you know, Darwin, survival of the fittest, which I learned today wasn't his term, um, it, right. A lot of us think we've all evolved to just be aggressive and whoever's the strongest, most dominant wins. But you have a completely different take on the subject. Yeah, and it comes from everything from my, you know, playing football in high school to boot camp in the military to working on Wall Street now as a professor. That, you know, I had coaches and I had drill sergeants and I had bosses that literally said to me, Cook, you have to be ruthless. Right. In order to get ahead. Yeah. I had to look out for myself. And what I found out in all those different jobs, they're insanely wrong, (laughs) not just wrong, insanely wrong. And I think that what we don't recognize is all the evidence is actually right in front of us. Right. Everything from the business world. um, For example, you know, Enron. Enron was a company that drove electricity into the ground so it could drive up its profits. Right. It was very selfish. Right. Now know that. Where are they? They're gone. gone. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and then you have businesses like Patagonia who give back to the community. And what I'm saying in, in, in Compassion and Achiever, that compassion and success are linked and it's a strong link. And if you want to achieve success on a high level, and this is key for a sustainable amount of time, you're going to weave compassion, not self-interest, not selfishness into your approach to achieving whatever you want to achieve. And the evidence is literally all around us. But I'm not saying that, that work jerks might not win some battles. They will. Right. But the, the long term of it all is that they're not going to succeed. They're going to flame out. They're going to crash. Well, and especially if you believe that you have to be harsh and aggressive to win, you're going to always look for the examples that the work jerk uh, – you know, succeeded. But if you if you see the research and the data, I mean, we came from tribal groups where our ability to be social and safe socially really was our predictor of success. If you weren't allowed in the group because you were a jerk or if you were too domineering, the group would turn against you, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. You got to play well with others yeah. right, in order to survive. And, you know, Darwin actually said that. So we, we get taught in fifth grade and sixth grade Darwin's hypothesis on the origin of species. That was his hypothesis. But if you read all the rest of his research, Matt, what's really mind-blowing and really cool is he says, and especially in The Descent of Man, uh, toward the end of his career, right, he writes in chapters two, four, and five. Check this out, Matt. He says that the species that will move up the evolutionary ladder the most efficiently and the most effectively is the species who has the highest number of its members, and check this out, this is his word, that are sympathetic. Is Hmm. that the Darwin that you were taught? No. Nope. No. Just go back to the original. 
and you'll see what Darwin was saying. And he literally was saying, just like as you were saying at the top of the, um, our segment here, it's survival of the kindest, not survival of the selfish. And sympathetic meant now means – has been kind of reinterpreted to mean empathic, empathetic. Well, uh, yeah, it could be. Right? Um, Paul Ekman – uh, from California, a psychologist, um, a really famous psychologist from California, actually you know, went through Darwin's work, and he found that Darwin used sympathy to mean three different things in three different passages of, of various books. Everything from uh, being uh, altruism, empathy, and compassion. Hmm. Wow. Which, by the way, doesn't seem like you're a brute. <laughs> right. Right. And and think about it, too, Matt. We all fall, all of us, at some time or another. And if you're a jerk and you're cutting bridges and you're cutting ropes to other people by not helping them, by just letting them fall and not helping them up, what happens when you fall? Yeah. They're going to be there to pick you up. No. Right. Right. No way. No way. So it, it's, it's a logical, rational approach, actually, if you think about it. And, you know, I've heard so many times in so many different jobs that the, uh, the rational approach is the selfish approach. No, that's not that's not Adam Smith didn't even say that, by mm. the way, in the Wealth of Nations. Right. So so the compassionate approach is what drives success. What is it about the compassionate side that is so um I guess that that is so enticing? Oh man, there's so many reasons um to look at compassion in terms as a key driving force for success. And I, I basically outlined four steps in, in the book. But and let's just start with what I think is the most important and what, as a society, we've forgotten how to do, and that's listen. The very first step on compassion, and, it, and what I mean listen, it's not just hearing, it's listening to learn, right? Because in our society, we tend to listen to reply, right? We, we have right. to be listening so we can form an answer, not listening to understand, right? And if we understood a lot of what people were going through, what our coworkers are going through, what our wives or husbands are going through, right? We would have a better grasp, a holistic approach to the problems that are all around us. But instead, we just simply listen to reply because we think we know the answers. And my wife was my best teacher on that because when we were first married, man, I, 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 did, the, I did the guy thing. I wanted to solve all her problems. But all she wanted me to do was listen. So I had a, she taught me that in a, in a great way. So it, that's interesting because we, we we seem to have these breakdowns, whether it's in political, you know, the political world with society, workplaces and schools, economics, health, all these other issues, immigration, security, and the reality is listening as one of your behaviors, one of the skills or steps, could be injected into any part of these because um, it's so universal. Without a doubt, and there's in in the book we cover different ways of how to practice that. So, you know, one, one fun way that I do is that I listen to podcasts or shows that, you know, are, come from an opposite or view, diff, very different viewpoint that I have on whatever topic it is. And I make sure I listen all the way through. And I'm not listening to reply. I'm just literally li- taking notes. I do better when I have a pen in my hand to just listen. And so, you know, it's a lot of people, you know, can't listen to a certain politician that, that's up there because they just don't like you know, who he or she is. And I think every person has some type of strength to their argument. And we just have to understand what, what, their, what parts of their argument mean the most to them and what the strengths are of their argument. And then weave that together into ours and we can have a constructive dialogue 
rather than, you know, constant debates. Oh, yeah, please. Um, in fact, one of the things um, before we get into all of your points, I, I mean, I guess really one of the it seems like compassion is soft, but it's also it's incredibly efficient. Right. It, and it works and it's kind of universal. But do you ever get people that are like, Ugh, that's just too soft or. Yeah, it's because we we saw with even President Trump and a lot of the politicians, it's about being strong and hard and, you know, taking America back kind of a mentality. Do people, for some reason, are they drawn to harsh over soft? Well, it's what we're taught, man. Uh, right now, it's, it's exactly what we're taught. So, yes, first off, I do get that. I actually had a mother in one state where I was talking to parents and teachers about compassion and compassion in the classroom. She came up to me after a talk and said, I don't want my son to learn compassion because I don't I, I want him to I don't want him to be picked on. And I, I want him to take full advantage of everything that he can get. And I said, ma'am, actually, compassion is strength. It's, compassion is not weakness. Anybody can get angry. <laughs> We've seen them all. You don't have to be smart to be angry. Right. You don't have to be strong to be angry. You just have to lose it. And that's the easiest thing to do in the world. It takes no strength to be selfish. It takes no strength to be angry. Um, and, and so one of the things that you, know, you, you think about is that when, it, when you think of compassion and, and softness, you know, I was thinking of water. Water is considered a soft element, right? And rock is considered a hard element. But Matt, doesn't water cut through rock? Yeah, right. It does. And it just it, takes time. In life, That's right. right. Compassion cuts through all the crud that may be around us because it also activates, you know, help that you didn't even know. By being nice to someone, someone else might be watching that you don't even know, right? And it, it gets back to Ralph Waldo Emerson for me. He talks about, Emerson talks about character is what you do when you don't think anyone's looking. Well, there's been a lot of times in my life where I didn't think anyone was looking and they saw that I did the right thing and then they helped me out when I had a, maybe a roadblock or an obstacle in front of me or a dam or, or in our case right now, a rock in, in, in front of me. And the compassion that I shared to someone else because someone else was watching, I didn't do it for that reason, right? It was, it's, it was a byproduct of my action that someone else helped me. Right? And I don't think we give enough credence to, to that, that way of thinking. Imagine if we all just helped each other. Yeah. It would be a lot better world. Do you, I, I guess you just teach these behaviors, you teach these skills, uh, and do you believe that everyone can learn them? I mean, every one meaning, you know, those that without major serious <laughs> issues, um, but can, can everyone learn compassion? Yes. And yes, without a doubt. I mean, other than, because the way their brains are set up, psychopaths. So, you know, psychopaths have a, a different different brain uh, structure than, than than the rest of us do. Uh, and yes, even everyone in your show, you guys, when I listen to you guys, you guys are hilarious, but, you know, teasing each other. Yes, you all can learn compassion. I'm sure you guys are going to have fun with that. Later yeah, we got to work on that. Um, <laughs> but yes, and it goes, and Darwin believes that, and this is Darwin, man. I know, this is so that. amazing, because everyone thinks Darwin was just so not teaching this, but he was. Right, and same with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, famous for the social contract. He said, and this is a quote by him, he said that we were all born, quote-unquote, with natural compassion. And we unlearn it, Matt, through what society teaches us. Think about it. On the playground, 
we allow kids, we teach kids to play a game called King of the Hill. King of the Hill, where you push each other down so that someone can be on top. And I went to try to explain realism in international politics to um, uh, 119 European students when I was teaching on a Fulbright over in the country of Estonia. And I was teaching realism, which is basically about that in international politics, about putting another country down so you can get on top. And it's actually a real theory. Um, and the, the class, one young lady, a Polish lady, uh, I'll never forget her. She was an amazing scholar. And she raised her hand and she goes, Dr. Cook, what's king of the hill? And I had explained to 119 wow. European students that in America, our kids play on the playground, a game where they knock each other down. And you should have saw their faces. And then I explained that we also play a game called kill the carrier, where you throw the ball <laughs> to someone and everyone right. starts to kill them. Right? And, but they don't play those games over there. And she raised her hand after it was done. She goes, thank you, Dr. Cook. That explains so much about the United States. Ugh. That, that killed me. Yeah. That crushed me. Yeah. Oh, but that's but yeah, what... <laughs> we can learn it. That's it. Well, I mean, and even just our last presidential race, I think, was king of the hill, kill the carrier, right? I mean, it was... It, yeah. They're ugly. It's an, it's an ugly so highly competitive that then we may learn our lose our ability as Clouseau, I guess, talked about our ability to um, uh, to be cooperative. Uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Christopher Cook and his book, The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuels Success. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about compassion and how uh, survival of the kindest may be a better, you know, mantra instead of survival of the fittest. And joining us is Dr. Chris Cook. He is a uh, professor of political and social science at Western Connecticut State University, author of the book The Compassionate Achiever, and is teaching us today about uh, how to how to actually become a more compassionate person, Dr. Cook. Thank you again so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Um, is when you think about um, the, I, I guess, the skills behind compassion and being a compassionate achiever, I know you've broken, broken them down into four different uh, you know, practical ways to get compassion into our lives, into our relationships. You've already talked about active listening and being a listener. What are some other skills we need to have? All right. So, Kind of a simple way to remember this is think of the name Luca, L-U-C-A. In a lot of different languages, Luca, the name, means bringer of light. But also in science, it stands for the last universal common ancestor of all life here on Earth. So Luca, for me, had a bunch of really cool different meanings, and it just happened to fall into my, my steps. Hmm. So the first is listening to learn. The second is Understand the you is uh, the you and Luca. Understand to know. Understand to know what you need to do to help someone, right? And then the um, third step is connect to capabilities. Uh, connect. So sometimes someone might come to you for help, but you may not have the capability to help them. So you, you should be able to, to 
connect them to either other people or other organizations that can help or address their problems. So connect to capabilities, so listen, understand, connect. And then the final one, which separates compassion from everything from empathy and sympathy, that's act, act to solve. So Luca, listen, understand, connect, and act. Those are the four basic steps. And so I listen to learn, and I guess I guess the idea is um, we, we could take any scenario. We could take the whole immigration issue, and if, if you're a congressperson and you're dealing with the immigration issue, you could listen to learn, understand and know, connect to capabilities, and act to solve. Yes. Every single aspect in life you can do this. And, and we, we break down you know, all those four steps. Every step has three chapters devoted to a practical ways and exercises to help everyone kind of improve their compassion muscle so they can improve their listening. They can improve their understanding. They can improve their connecting capabilities. Because think about it, it's like networking in, in, in a different way, right? And then acting to solve, right? I even, acting includes the, um, the act of non-doing. And we can talk about that a little bit later too. It's yeah. like a paradox, but it isn't. Talk about um, understanding, because I think a lot of us assume we do understand. You know, we need a border wall. I mean, people, they just we understand it. But there's so much complexity. There's so much information there. There might be places there can't be a wall. There might be places that it doesn't work. There might be places, I mean, just look at a wall. It's ugly. I mean, there's a lot of understanding that needs to be had. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, unfortunately, Matt, not every radio show and TV show is like yours, where you have a lot of different guests in terms of diverse opinions and ideas. Usually, you know, in this day and age, a lot of shows are kind of one-trick ponies. They're, they're one avenue. They're one way of thinking. And, you know, and people then tend to listen to that. And then they go online and they surround themselves with people who think the same way. So people think they have an understanding. But an understanding comes from a, a knowing a diversity of ideas. And we've narrowed that. We, we have the tools to have a diversity of ideas, right, the Internet. We have, I don't know, 10,000 cable stations or whatever. I have Roku, right? It gives me a whole nother station. But what people tend to listen to are the ideas and stations that already promote their current way of thinking. We don't challenge our way of thinking all the time, right? We don't question our, our way of thinking enough. And I, I think you know, we can get into a whole other show about why that happens. Mm. Everything from school system, right, where you fill in tests and no question anymore, to, you know, literally turning on, you know, whatever station that you are, if you're left or right. Um, and the understanding is about getting a holistic idea and a holistic knowing so that you're, you know, I, I founded a debate team on our campus and debaters, when they compete, have to debate the pro side, which some of them personally agree with, and then they have to debate the negative side, which they may not disagree with, which they may disagree yeah. with. And so what, what we found out, every time they take a side that they didn't think they liked, they found an argument that, like, wait a minute, ah, I can make my idea a little bit stronger by taking this. I never knew about it. I, hmm. I always get that. I never knew because they never had to look. So we don't understand. We, we have this one trick pony of one avenue, one lane that we stay in. And a true understanding has a 360-degree perspective, not a one-degree perspective, not even a 15. Right? It takes 360 degrees, and we don't do that anymore. We tend to go to the stations that we 
already think like. How, how do we know? Is, is there a, is there any insight you have as to how we know personally if we have a whole knowledge, a whole view? No, oh, man, that's the fun part. I don't think there is. It's the quest, Matt. Yeah. It's about constantly searching. Because I think if someone says that they have, you know, they already reached that holistic view and they're sitting on top of a mountain somewhere and we have to bow down to them, that scares the living daylight out. <laughs> right? Because no one, no one has that answer. Totally. If they do, I tell my students to run. You know, just because I have a PhD, you know, those initials behind my name, I tell my students, all a PhD means, Matt, is that I compiled it high and deep. That's right. right? That, That's right. That doesn't mean I know everything. And I should be able to ask better questions, right? And every day be able to do that. And it's about the search for understanding. Uh, so and I, I think, you know, there's only a few, few you know, characters in, in history, from Jesus you know, to Buddha to you name it, that had that even came close to that, mm. to that understanding. Um, and, but it's the search. So true. That's the journey, right? And, and, and I guess to have the confidence that, you know, what you don't know, we'll just keep figuring it out. We got more tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day. We'll do it again. I also love this idea of connecting to others' capabilities. Really, so many people are just one networking connection away from being able to take it to a whole new level. I mean, I, like I was as I read your bio, I sit there and I think of everything you've done plus a Fulbright, and I'm going to bet uh, those things happen not just because you're smart and amazing, but because you also had the ability to connect to the right people. Yeah, and you know, someone asked me, you know, a, a question we tend to get every every so often: what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And I, I told them, sit down because the list of weaknesses is long. I said, but my strength, I can tell you right off the top of my head, it's my friends. Those are, that's my, those are my strengths. The people I surround myself with, um, they're positive. They're uplifting, always looking for uh, answers and, and better questions like E.E. E. Cummings, right? And, and my neighbor, right? It, we, we've got so many cool people that we can surround ourselves with, and they are sometimes our greatest strengths. And I, I don't think we give credit to that either. No. And, I mean, and again, this is why – it, you you have more power in your kindness because you build a stronger network of people around you, and then you yeah, can re- and, you can pull on all of them. Right, and even they come to you even when you don't ask because they see something going on or they notice something, and then they'll jump in. I can't tell you how many times that's happened. And I, you know, when I hear somebody say that you know they got to where they are all by themselves. That is, it's like someone saying to me, you know, I got the perfect family. No. No. We all have issues, man. Some of us have volumes more than issues, but we all have them. We all have problems. And, and so it's getting through those that, that, that are sometimes, they, they can take you down. But when you're surrounded by a network of, of people who you care about, they tend, for the most part, I'm not going to say it happens all the time, they tend to care for you, too, even when you don't expect it. happen. Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, And last, the last point is just action, right? We got to take action towards a solution because, but it seems like maybe the action's easier to take because you're better informed because you've listened, you understand, you're connected to the right people. Then all you got to do is act on it. Right. So by listening, understanding and connecting, right, hopefully you're not creating new problems because a lot of times, you know, I was in government for a while. Sometimes the steps you take create more problems than they actually solve, right? So by listening and understanding and connecting, hopefully, yeah, you minimize that, that chance. But, 
this also separates compassion from empathy, right? And because empathy is just feeling the same, having the same feeling as someone else. Compassion has two aspects to it, right? It's this understanding about a problem and then doing something about it, addressing it. And here, it's it, and a non-doing can actually be helpful in, in this. So, and, you know, non-doing is not the same as doing nothing. It's, and let me just give you an example of that. One of my, I have three little dudes, I have three boys, and one of them had a serious medical condition and his voice, for a few months, sounded like Darth Vader, <laughs> raspy, and yeah. he had a hard time breathing. And he was going back after extended stay in the hospital uh, to the class, and I wanted to kind of set up the class. <laughs> you know my, my my bio, I was a counterintelligence agent, and I wanted to like get it all squared away. And he, he goes, Dad, I know you want to do something. He goes, but let me do it. And it was the hardest thing as a dad to not step in and make sure my son wasn't going to get picked on. But the teachers told me he got up in front of the class and said he's coming back, and, and he made a Darth Vader joke. And it <laughs> settled everything down. So my act of non-doing actually helped my son more than by me doing something because now it also built his self-confidence. Right? Something that you hope to teach but really can only be done by the person who, who, who needs it built. And so it's those acts of non-doing sometimes, right? The doctor who prescribes no medication, but walking around in, in nature, right? Sometimes those are the best things uh, to move forward. Absolutely. Well, Chris, great stuff. Um, I can't uh, recommend it more. Thank you for your time, and thank you for being with us. Uh, Dr. Chris Cook is his name. The Compassionate Achiever is the book, How Helping Others Fuels Success. Go check out his website as well, chriscook.com. Cook is spelled K-U-K-K. Cook. Chriscook.com. Uh, boy, good to good to have such talent um, uh, and, and just insight that we can draw upon. We will take a break, come back, wrap up this uh, second hour of the show. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. Drop it. I've got to wait for the drop, don't I? It's just so... I'm just chomping at the bit to get in there. You little music mixer. Hey, as uh, we like to do, um, a little empty news for you. Not all the news is critical to know, but some of it, um, you know... It's it's kind of fun. Uh, you might want to know this. The Spanish government admits that it can't defend against a zombie apocalypse. Really? That's yeah. not good news. I mean, the great thing is Spain, I think, is the first government to admit that. Hmm. The reality is, is I'm, I'm sure most governments cannot uh, defend against the zombie apocalypse. Um, the Spanish government has said it is incapable of defending the country against a zombie apocalypse in what must go down as one of the most bizarre and pointless exchanges in political history. The government said it is it hasn't formulated any concrete plans to deal with a dawn of the dead, partly because it says it doubts that there ever would be enough zombies to actually trigger such an apocalypse. So they're they're conceding that there probably would be some zombies, but just not enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, like, not enough to trigger an apocalypse. 
I wonder what that number is. That's the tough part yeah, is knowing the, what that number is. I think it's the tipping point, right? It's mm. the it's the zombie tipping point between just hey a weird infestation of zombies versus a full blown apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. There's like this guy likes to lick frogs, <laughs> but he might not be a zombie. Right. Yeah. He's just a frog licker. Uh, the somewhat flippant remarks were made in response to an equally flippant question in the Spanish Congress by Senator Charles Muley who had asked the government what sort of plans it had in place to deal with the mass uprising from beyond the grave. Muley asked the question as a form of protest at what he considered the poor quality of written responses given by the Spanish government to its opposition in the Senate. In responding to the question, the government reverted to Spain's Royal Academy Dictionary to search for the definition of the word zombie and apocalypse. You know, you got to be thorough, and we right. got to define our terms. What are we fighting about here? For the latter, it found two definitions. Apocalypse means the end of the world and a catastrophic situation. The government said that while there are plans in place to deal with a catastrophic situation, there is little point to putting plans in place for the end of the world, such as an event that is likely to uh, never actually happen. So if you're a zombie and you're listening... I know. The the Spanish government is not prepared, so you may want to strike there first. Right. I mean, what, are you just going to tip your hand, Spain? That was foolish. That was, yeah, that was, that's what we call a zombie, you know, foot in the door. Zombie boo-boo. Zomboo-boo. Yeah, those are bad. Those are bad. Hey, 14 uh, animals, including a llama and a pony, escaped from a petting zoo in Cologne, Germany on Tuesday, leading to a mad scramble by officers and zoo workers to round them all up. The animals had slipped through a hole in the fence in their enclosure at the petting zoo and made a run for it, according to zoo officials. The escapees included nine sheep, two donkeys, one llama, a pony, and a dwarf bull. Ooh, those are the ones you got to watch out those for. Those are the little bulls, and they aren't easy to catch. And it was apparently every animal for itself as they all ran in different directions. The llama was spotted in a park, while the pony and the donkeys made it to, uh, uh, into someone's backyard. Other animals wandered onto the playground. It took seven police officers and fifteen um, and a 15-head search team from the petting zoo to finally round up the rowdy deserters. None Sounds of them were harmed. epic. It was epic. Epic. So, uh, you know, watch out, for the, watch out for zombies and for the animals from the petting zoo. By the way, I never heard if the dwarf bull was ever found. Hmm. Mm. Running of the dwarf bulls on TLC. He should team up with the dwarf planet Pluto. They should have their own show. Yeah, they should. It's a great show. That'd be great. Hey, uh, that's the that's the show. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More interesting insights into how to be a better you. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest and greatest, a leg up in life. You know, help you get on that horse so you can ride into the sunset. 
That's what we do. We get you on the horse. That was like five different idioms right there. Thank you very much. We're here all day. And uh, in the program today, we're going to be talking about your need for sleep with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. He will help you not only live longer but and, and avoid death. Today, he's going to teach you how to get some sleep. And it couldn't be happening at a better time. Jeffrey, wake up, buddy. But Jeff, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, wake up, pal. Hey, pal. Oh. Hey. <clears throat> hey. That's it. Sorry. Huh? Rub his forehead. There you go. Whoa. Okay. So um, now that we've got you awake, we... It's perfect timing because this is the day – this is one of the only days I've heard Jeff complain about his sleep. Well, I've just realized – I've done the math and I believe I'm now below six hours asleep every night. Below six hours? Yeah. Do you know what is the problem? I used to use an app that would track my sleep. And when I track my sleep, I sleep more. And then really? I found out – yeah. Then I found out that – our phones may be giving us brain cancer, and in order to make my app work, you're supposed to like basically put it under your pillow. So now I'm like, I can't sleep on that or I'll get brain cancer. So do I want brain cancer or do I want sleep? So I've decided I just want sleep, so I'm going to start getting brain cancer. <laughs> I have to put my phone across the room because otherwise I'll turn off the alarm and not even realize it. Oh, really? You're that kind of sleeper? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. That says a lot. I I've decided to... Tonight, I'm going to try putting my phone not in the room. So when I go to bed, I will have the phone out in the kitchen and I will wake up with an alarm clock. Have you guys heard of those? I use one every day. And it's an alarm clock and I will have to get up out of bed and go over and turn the alarm off. So this is this is an alarm on your phone? No, no, no. It, it, will, be, it, will, it will be an alarm in the bedroom. with a. It has a clock. And it's an alarm, and like the if you it, when it turns on, the radio will turn on. So I'm confused. It's not has nothing to do with the phone. It's an alarm clock. It's a clock radio. They were invented like in the 50s, 60s, probably. So it does it play like MP3s or? No, it could. I guess if you have a nice one. Mine does. Yeah, mine's this one's just a little clock radio. But it's the neat thing is it's also across the room where I can't see it. I can't see the time. So but, I have to squint with one eye. But then you can make a call and ask Siri yeah. for the weather and all no, that. See, this is the problem with being a millennial is you can't fathom this not being connected to your phone. But oh, ooh, oh the millennials are mad today. Ah, boy. Sorry, man. Sorry, sorry millennials. Sorry. Anyway, we'll get to sleep talk. And um, if I'm not here on the show tomorrow, it's because I used an alarm clock radio to get me up. Just letting you know. Well, use I'm your let, phone as backup. Well, my phone's going to be in the kitchen. Because I go to bed and then I watch a show or no, I play games or set, I – Set it across the room so it's inconvenient to get out of bed. I take care of my city, my town. Set it over there. Downton so Abbey. if I didn't have – if I don't have a clock radio, like will a ham radio do the same thing? Yeah, try it. Try it. Okay. You can just get you know a, a honey baked. So if I'm not here tomorrow, it's because I used a ham radio yeah. to wake up. Yeah. I love ham radio. So we'll be talking with Ron Hager up next um, in just a few minutes. Also, of course, we'll be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out uh, what's coming up on the end. I think the NFL draft. Is it today? It's Thursday. Oh, it's Thursday. Thursday in prime time. Excellent. It's always a special now. You can't just have a show. But there's a game five tonight that you you continue to (laughs) refuse to acknowledge I'm not. I'm I'm, not. I want to know when, like, at what point you'll acknowledge 
the Utah Jazz in the playoffs. Like how far do you're they have to jinx get? It. You're going to jinx it. How far do they have to get before you'll they get mention the, them? Well, the problem is they have to play the best team in the Yeah, just NBA. they need to play well in the first round and get out because the next round they'll get swept and it'll be over. Oh. It'll be really depressing. Just have them play well. They played really well against the Warriors. I just don't I don't want to jinx any of this, so I don't want to talk about it. So can we never talk about the Dodgers again? We'll talk Especially about the Dodgers with, when no, they no, no. Get, don't talk with Joe Joe Cannon about him. Don't do it because you don't want to jinx it, right? Yeah, you Dodger fans. Don't even don't even say the word. You, L.A. You Evader fan. Evaders. <laughs> we get to all that fun ahead. I'm also, of course, a hero of the day. Great hero story coming up. Plus, a little uh, other empty news. Dr. Pepper may be um, surprising a lucky college student. With their own soda fountain. Mm. By the way, I'm, I've really weaned off of any carbonated beverage. I drink a lot of water today, or a, water, a lot of water for the last about uh, ten days. So, thank you, thank you, all all six of you. Thank you. Now let's turn it over to Terry South um, and find out what's going on with the news around the country. Terry, what's up? What do we need to know? On Wednesday, President Trump will announce his plan to overhaul the tax code, including his proposal to cut the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 15 percent. White House officials told uh, The Washington Post Monday independent analysis, analysis, analysts have uh, estimated a cut this severe could cost the federal government $2.4 trillion over 10 years, and it's a deeper cut than the one the House Republicans have already proposed. Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen said Monday that the, such a tax plan will pay for itself with economic growth. But Edward uh, Killenbar, the former chief of staff for Congress uh, Joint Committee on Taxation, told The Post that if Trump's administration is going on the they're going to rely on the principle that tax cuts can pay for themselves. History has demonstrated that tax policies move the growth needle a little bit, but it needs to be more than that if they're going to make up for $2.4 trillion in losses over 10 years. Most, I mean, how hard could that be to find? I don't know. Maybe we don't fund a wall. But it uh, says most companies do not pay the 35% rate anyways because of deductions, and these changes will have to be backed with by Congress and bipartisan support to pass yeah so again is this that ploy that uh trump has talked about in his books where you you shoot with you you lead with the the big ask and then back off and that's your negotiating tactic yeah. i have a feeling that's what he's done he's gonna back off to i mean 15 percent is where it's at now i guess and so 30 oh go from 35 to 15 so he's gonna get 25 25 percent, kind of in the middle, or is that still too much? It's still probably too much. Still too much. You can Pre- only be so lucky. President Trump has summoned all 100 senators to the White House uh, for Wednesday for a rare briefing on the topic of North Korea. Hear ye, hear ye. Absolutely. The meeting will be led by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Director of National Intelligence Dan Kodas, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Joseph Dunford. Experts are increasingly worried by the speed of North Korea's technological advancements, with intelligence indicating the nation is able to produce a nuclear bomb every six or seven weeks. What, why would they go to the White House for that meeting? Well, that's what the senators are asking. They're like, we had those. So the White House asked Mitch McConnell, he's the leader in the Senate, and he accepted, puzzling some senators since they have their own building that they can all fit in comfortably, and there's really no place in the White House where you can put 100 people 
to have a meeting, and you, especially a secure meeting. Yeah. Some wondered if the hmm. Washington Post, uh, the Washington Post wondered if the administration intends to use the moment as a photo op to bolster the 100-day mark that isn't important but is very important as they launch the President Trump's 100-day yeah, mark website sure. today. So you can go look at that and see his, all of his achievements. Oh, good. I is he going to be up. unveiling the statue after the first hundred days? The Trump chew? Yeah, the Trump chew. I I, th- I think they're going to wait till the second hundred days. Okay. Uh, other news, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai will kick off the process to scrap the Obama administration's net neutrality rules on Wednesday, according to four sources. This is uh, the latest move to relax regulation on the telecom industry. Pai will use a speech in Washington to repeat his opposition to the FCC's existing approach, which subjects the likes of AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon to old telephone utility rules to ensure that they aren't blocking or slowing down your web traffic. Hmm. So Verizon has a video app. That is on all their devices. Okay. It's called like Go 20 or something. And it has video. It has all that kind of content. If they want to, they could slow down YouTube on their network to make it so that it doesn't work as well. And then it would make you use their video app and choose their app because it works well. It works oh, better. Oh, them is fighting right? words though. So when you make that decision, so Verizon is basically making it so that you will choose their app over everything else. And that's... So net neutrality, that those rules were to make it so that they can't do that. Everything has to be seen as being equal yeah. across you know, your access or what you access on your devices. Now the FCC is trying to roll those rules back so then people can do it on the honor system. Yeah, like, we're, we're not going to do that, even though it would be totally within their, their best interest their for purview, the business sure. to do that. So that's kind of the rules they're looking to, to roll back. There's some uh, pushback. If you remember, the whole net neutrality push was rather chaotic. And people were angry as these were being uh, right. dis- discussed and they were happy for the way the rules were made. And now they're rolling them back because business doesn't like that because they're constrained by more regulation, right? Yeah. So I don't know what the end of that will be. Well, someone will not be happy. <laughs> Finally, a Swedish hotel chain offers refunds to couples who divorce within a year of stay. Really? So a group, of, uh, a hotel group in Sweden thinks a stay at one of its hotels will help fix your marriage. If it doesn't, they will refund you all the money for that, that uh, weekend or whatever trip you spent at their hotel. Country- if you, so if you divorce, you can refund your trip. Your hotel trip. So countryside hotels will give money back to any couple who books a room and divorces within 12 months of their stay. Well, well that must be some hotel. Because, like, what if you're what – if, what if you're having marital problems because – of communication issues. Right. Or because you found out that they had been lying on their taxes. The director of marketing for the hotel group says the aim uh, is getting time for each other and investing in a relationship. It's very important. And we hope that we can convince more couples to invest in their relationships before it's too late. No. The refund is good for up to a two-night stay. According to a press release, couples who wish to take advantage of this offer must provide legal documents proving the divorce. So, okay, so we're going to try to go work on our marriage, go to a country stay hotel, and if it doesn't work and we end up getting divorced, we can send our receipts in and our divorce decree and we'll get a refund. You get your money back. Wow. I mean, that's, I, mean it's, I guess it's, it's great marketing, I guess. <laughs> Two-night stay. <laughs> Double well, occupancy. You know what they really ought to do are the marriage therapists. Maybe they ought to give them a refund. Probably. Hmm? Huh? Hmm. Money back guarantee. Isn't that what you offer? I do have. I actually do have a money back guarantee. Mm. But you got to do what we teach, right? Oh, it's the hard part. 
There's always a catch. So always the catch is you just got to do what we teach. Yeah. Money back guarantee. Um, okay. Let's, let's go with that. Um, Dr. Pepper, another marketing little idea here. They surprised a Kansas woman with her very own outdoor soda fountain. All she had to do, she just shared a tweet expressing her love for the beverage. Kansas State University student Claire Daniels tweeted in December saying she wished she had a Dr. Pepper fountain installed in her house to save money on her favorite soft drink. So you're talking about the type of fountain that shoots outward and (laughs) that type of fountain? Well, interesting. More of a water feature type fountain. But listen to what they did. Much to her surprise, the soda company arrived on her doorstep five months later to install a six-foot-tall maroon-colored Dr. Pepper fountain in her front yard. Capable of holding five gallons of her favorite drink. Mm. It's real crazy. Daniels told the Wichita Eagle, I'm still kind of in awe. It was just kind of a joke tweet, but here we are. I think it's awesome. I'm really excited. It's kind of crazy to think that one tweet could make this happen. Daniels said she drinks two or three cans of soda a day. And while she won't be able to drink from the decorative outdoor fountain, Dr. Pepper also provided her with 1,200 cans for her own drinking pleasure. You purposely saved this story until Ron Hager was sitting behind uh-huh. you, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, because nobody loves a Dr. Pepper more than Dr. Ron Hager. The sugary kind, not the diet kind. And uh, no, so Ron's going to be teaching us how to be healthy. But I do want to send out a tweet about some of my other – some of my favorite things. Oh, OK. Like I, I love – I used to love Diet Coke. I don't drink uh, – I love um, Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Doctor Ron, and I love um, I love nibs. Mm. <laughs> nibs, the nibs. Twizzlers nibs or yeah. the ice cream nibs? The Twizzlers nibs. Oh, but like I but, had, I had my level of respect for you was but, up here. But you don't even know what kind of nibs I like. Hey, you just said Twizzlers, though. Oh boy, he's got an attitude today. He does. What do you like that you'd want to have them deliver to your house? Maybe twelve hundred of. Ooh, maybe like a double-double from In-N-Out Burger. Okay, well, may you rest in peace. How about you, Terry? What can we get for you? Milk duds. Ooh. That's good eating. They got to be fresh, though. Got to be fresh. I like mine still. Said no one ever. Um, Okay, we will take a break. When we come back, Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us, our health evangelist. He's going to be talking about sleep. Are you getting enough sleep? Because if not, boy, oh boy, is your life going to fall apart. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Joining us is our health evangelist. I dropped the ball. I'll yeah. get it next time. You know what? Just keep your eye on the ball. Um, Ron is uh, Ron Hager is back. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. His area of expertise is chronic disease prevention. He's the death preventer, we used to call him, and now we call him our health evangelist. Welcome, Ron. It's great to be here. Good to have you. And just found out after I gave – I just did an endorsement for you for Dr. Pepper that you've <laughs> never tasted a Dr. Pepper in your life. I've never tasted Dr. Pepper. Oh, you're healthy. That's such a – that's so great. See, you're showing the rest of the world that you don't have to partake of every beverage. That's true. That, that's certainly true. I, 
I advocate for just drinking water or yeah. or, or never drinking your calories. Yeah, no, that's um, I every time my kids ask for a juice or my grandchild asks asks for a juice, I I teach my 14-month-old grandbaby that we don't need to drink her calories. That's right. 14 and my wife's old. like, you know what? Let her drink her calories yeah. now until she can you know, eat. Until she has some until teeth. She, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she has a tooth. Um, so, Ron, today we've kind of thrown a, we've thrown a, a little uh, topic at you because so much research – it's sleep week, I guess. Yeah. And so much research is coming out about how much sleep we need to get. And Jeff and I just decided we're not getting enough. Yeah. Well, I thought that too as I was researching this a little bit. I was – um, I was so worried about this. I couldn't go to sleep last night. So. Wow! No, I'm just you kidding. need to let, you need to you need to get some. Maybe you had too much caffeine. No, no, you don't drink any of that. Well, stuff. It, it, it's funny because the, the the thing is, anybody who knows me knows that I never have a problem with sleep. You just can go right to bed. Yeah, I I um, you know if I'm in bed already and my wife's in bed and she starts talking to me or something, I. I've learned it's probably best if I actually get out of bed and stand up and because I'll fall asleep while she's talking to me and then that Oh, interesting. That's you know, nice and, of you. And then that's not very nice to right. fall asleep while somebody's no. talking to you. But so Do you I, just stand there in the dark? <laughs> yeah, sure. I can't I mean but, it doesn't matter. You're... But, but but I I you know, I've almost missed planes because of sleeping. One time I had to catch a a flight, a a, a red eye flight, so it left very late at night. This was in Albuquerque. I got to the airport a couple hours before the flight takes off. The airport's almost empty because nobody likes to fly. At, yeah. You know, your plane leave at midnight. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go to the gate. And I've, I've got, I know I'm so tired. I'm going to fall asleep. I'll miss my flight. I've got to figure something out. So I, I grabbed a chair, just a loose chair, like from a table. And I put it right next to the door to the jetway. And I leaned it back against the wall and I sat in it and I actually fell asleep. And I thought, there's no way everybody's going to get on this plane without without waking me up. And <clears throat> sure enough the the gate attendant kind of kind of tapped my shoulder and said uh uh sir are you on this flight? And I I woke up and I said uh yeah yes yes I am. She says, "Well, you need to get on the plane immediately. They're about to close the door. Everybody else is already boarded." <laughs> Holy cow. So, so they all walked right past me. You I are slept through the whole thing. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's some good genes right there. Yeah. Um, so the the lack of sleep, though, that's it, a problem. I didn't realize how many problems it causes. You know, it, it's sleep. Sleep is an interesting thing. Obviously, it's something everybody needs. You know, I, I thought, I wonder how long a person has actually stayed awake, and uh, and I looked up some of the records, and it depends on what country you're looking at. Uh, but anywhere from about eleven to fourteen days. Wow, is is like records that people have set. Who for can staying do that? Away. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it is kind of crazy. But the the more the more concerning part of this, Matt, is that um, we live in a twenty four seven world, you know, um, and it didn't used to be that way. And as I've come to think about this, you know, with our we've talked about this before, you know, our technology, our efficiencies, our advancements, you know, which can all be good, but in in one sense, they're also a double-edged sword. Yeah, you know, I mean, yes, yes, we can become more efficient. I, I looked up some interesting research to show that, you know, we are as productive and as efficient as we've ever been any time in history, and we have less leisure time mm. than at any other time in history. Now, 
you would think it would be just the opposite, wouldn't you? That the more efficient you get, the better you are at getting things done, then the more time you would have. Right. But it's exactly the opposite. And, you know, the the number of hours in a day doesn't change. That That's that's not a change. I mean, I guess maybe there could be some kind of a law or something that could change. Say we're going to go to a 35-hour day. But, but according to, you know, sunrise and sunset and when it's light and when it's dark, I mean, that's pretty much established. No matter how many laws we pass, we're not going to change – you know, how often the earth rotates on its <laughs> axis or something right, like that. Right, you're not changing that. So so it seems like, at least maybe you might want to say anciently, you know, that there was a pattern that was set. You know, when it's light, you're up and you're doing your thing. And when it's dark, you're asleep and you're resting and recovering. And and in today's world, uh, that's just not the case. Oh, no. We, we work 24 hours a day, around the clock, every day of the year. And, you know, of course, you can argue and say, well, in some cases, that's that's necessary, you know, if you're a policeman or if you're a fireman or if you're a doctor. Um, but, you know, even – and I think back to when I was a kid. I mean, I'm not terribly old. At least I don't think so. But but there were times when I remember, you know, like watching TV till 10 o'clock at night. And then and then what happened? The, the, the TV shut off. Done. I mean, the TV would stay on. But, but you, you only had a couple more hours of but, – but, but, but there would just be this like uh, – signal that came on the TV yeah. and it would kind of show this color palette, yeah. you know, and it would say, we're off the air. Done. <laughs> you know, so you could stay we up. We know and, the boundaries. <laughs> yeah. So you could stay up and watch that screen, sure. but there was nothing on. And, and and so there was a time when kind of the world shut down. Yeah. But now it never does. And, so and, true. And, and we don't get enough sleep. We do not get enough sleep. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has said that uh, in the United States and other Developed nations, insufficient sleep is a public health problem. Oh, wow. And they say that more than a third of American adults are not getting enough sleep on a regular basis for their own good health. Um, and, it, and it's been linked uh, to a lot of things. Um, it, it's been linked to uh, psychosocial stress. You know, I mean, you know, when, a, when, oh. you're, when, when anybody gets overly tired, too fatigued, they don't handle things very no, well. No, they don't. Um, uh, it, it, it has led to poor diets. It's been linked to that. Um, obviously, a lack of physical activity. You're too tired to. I mean, yeah, it's like, move. well, you know, I, I worked 18 hours today. I, you know, let's I don't, go work out yeah. now. Yeah, and and also excessive electronic media use. You know, th- there's more and more stuff coming out on this to show that, you know, it, it, it is actually now an addiction. You know, it's classified as an addiction for some people. Um, you know, and like I said, it's a double-edged sword because 40 years ago, that was not in existence. Oh, my heavens. And today it is. And you can't say that it's only a good thing yeah, because it's not. No, no. And one of the things uh, that I notice here, insufficient sleep has been linked to seven of the 15 leading causes of death. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's – you know, we talk a lot on this on this segment on, on the show about prevention and yeah. lifestyle and the choices you make and how they impact your risk of chronic diseases. Uh, cardiovascular disease or, or coronary heart disease specifically is the number one killer in the United States and other developed countries. And there is ample research to show that insufficient sleep and sleep disorders and sleep deprivation all contribute to risk of uh, coronary heart disease, cardiovascular mm. disease, cancer, stroke, accidents. I'd like to say something just quickly about the accidents because this is something I did not know. But obviously, you know, you've you've heard things and you've read the <clears throat> some of the research on you know, when people get fatigued, they become impaired. You know, yeah. their judgment's not as good. Their motor control's not as good. Um, 
And and research has shown that lack of sleep can actually play a role in, you know, like traffic accident uh, prevalence, industrial accidents, and medical errors. Some time ago, we, we did a little segment on the show about medical errors. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, uh, you know, it's not really out in the news a whole lot. Uh, but it is one of the leading causes of death. Is mistakes made yeah. by doctors, pharmacists, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then also lack of work productivity. Uh, but this this is something I did not know. Lack of sleep uh, and or some kind of sleep disorder uh, ha- has been linked to the Chernobyl nuclear explosion, oh. to the Three Mile Island nuclear incident, to the Exxon Valdez oil spill, and to the Space Shuttle Challenger tragedy. So... <laughs> You know, it, it's not just like, you know, hey, I, you know, I can't stay awake in class or I can't stay awake in church because I'm so tired. This can actually lead to some very, very serious consequences, not only for your own health, but possibly, you know, have yeah. significant ramifications for an entire population of people, perhaps. Well, plus, I mean, I mean, the intro to this segment of the show was totally messed up by Jeff because of lack of sleep. <laughs> yeah. I mean... It, to think that it doesn't impact, it totally does. Let's do this, Ron. Let's take a break and come back and talk about what we do about it, and, and just give us some more data. What you know, what what's expected? Okay. How much sleep does one need? <sighs> Jeff gets more music that's not even related to the segment. <laughs> what do you do? What are you going to do? We'll take a break. More with Dr. Ron Hager when we come back. We're talking sleep. There we go. That is the uh, health evangelist music, if I've ever heard it. Makes you tap your toe, doesn't it? Why are you looking at me like that? I'm just glad to have you, you awake. You look like you're upset at me. We're talking something. about staying awake. Um, and uh, who better to help us with that than Ron Hager? Ron is a professor here in, of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at BYU. And his expertise is in chronic disease prevention. Seven of the top 15 leading causes of death have some connection to sleep, insufficient sleep. Yeah, yeah. Insufficient sleep is a risk factor for seven of the leading 15 causes of death. Uh, But there are other things associated uh, with lack of sleep that are of concern as well. You know, a lot of times we are concerned about our future. And, of course, that leads to a discussion about our children, right? Right. And uh, it's not just adults who are being uh, afflicted with this 24-7 world we live in and an inability to get enough sleep. Um, there's uh, there's actually a position statement that just came out um, and uh, by by a number of you know leading you know medical organizations uh, advocating for a later uh, start time for uh, middle school and high school. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of them start at 7.30, 7.45, whatever. They're saying it needs to start at least at 8.30 uh, because they're, you know, they, they're, they're, there's a problem with uh, children and adolescents as well, uh, Matt. Uh, not only both the quality of sleep, but the quantity of sleep as well. Yeah. And uh, research has shown that, you know, there are certain uh, rhythms, there are certain... Uh, uh, metabolic functions that um, are a part of, you know, a child or an adolescent's life. 
that change from infancy into childhood into adolescence, and you know the the rhythm of their body is not conducive to uh, the current environment, even at school. And these schedules have been set for twenty. 30, 40 years, and yeah. now they're finally starting to realize that these older kids, so middle and, and high school kids, their their rhythms are different, right? They actually yeah. go to sleep a little later, yeah. But and because that's kind of when their body naturally would go to sleep, and yeah. they they need they need to sleep in longer, yeah. Which is why school shouldn't start till eight thirty. Eight thirty, yeah. And 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 eighty seven percent of high school kids are not getting the recommended amount of sleep. Oh. So, it, it, we, you know, they're just being set up early in their life for a chronic problem later in their life. And, we and, we and, have an expert on the show that said that um, grades, or the elementary school kids, they actually – their systems, they can go to bed a little earlier. So you, you can get a grade school kid to go to bed at 9 and they, they can actually get up earlier. They can yeah. – they do better getting up earlier. Right. Because of their system and cycle and yet – but these high school kids were already putting them at a deficit. Yeah, they're already underwater. Yeah, and 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 it can have long term and perhaps even irreversible consequences because if a you know if a if a student doesn't do well oh, academically so true, huh? per se in high school, that can impact them for the rest of oh, their yeah. life. I mean, it can shut doors that otherwise would have been opened for education for opportunity, those kinds of things. So, like I said, this is this is considered a a major health crisis. Not only for adults, but especially for children. I wanted to bring that up with the children. I also wanted to mention, too, that uh, there's a massive economic cost. Now, everything, it seems, is driven by economics nowadays. Right. And, and uh, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the health care system, which I call a disease care system. You know, it costs a lot less to prevent a heart attack than it does to treat a heart attack. Uh, but yet there's so little emphasis put on prevention uh, but you know all the research money, all the advances in technology, it all goes right. to treatment, right? Um, so it's all about the economy. Well, uh, in, in the United States, the economic cost of too little sleep is estimated. This is a recent study. I think it was published in 2015. Uh, the economic cost of too little sleep is estimated to be about $411 billion <laughs> annually. That's 2.28% of the gross domestic product. $411 billion, billion problem. And that, that actually translates to about 1.2 billion lost working days in the U.S. each year. So, so that's that double-edged sword, yeah. Matt, where we say, well, you know, we, you know, we got to go, 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 go. We got to stay up with everybody else. We got we to gotta get ahead of everybody else. You know, we have no time uh, to sleep. Well, it, it's coming back on that double-edged sword concept, and it's kind of cutting us the other way with a with 1.2 billion days of lost work and a 411 billion dollars of of money lost in the U.S. economy. Yeah, I mean, so what if we got a little extra sleep? We we couldn't use 411 billion extra dollars. We couldn't use 1.2 billion extra work days every year. So you know, it's all about priorities, I guess. Right. Um, now, there are some things uh, that you can do, uh, and there are some recommendations that have been studied uh, and and have been shown to improve uh, sleep. Um, for one thing, set a consistent wake time. Uh, you know, people tend to adjust. You know, it's like, well, if my day off is Tuesday, I'm going to sleep in. You know, and if I don't have to be to work till 10 on Thursday, and I'm not yeah. going to get out of bed till 9. 
and and we're going to bed at all different times and waking up at all different times and that kind of goes back again to this I guess the this idea of you know our, our ancient rhythms you know when the sun goes down you go to sleep when the sun gets up you get up uh, we we no longer abide by that so a consistent wake time could be very helpful. Uh, limit the use of electronic devices before bedtime. Oh, I, yeah. I, I know I've been guilty of this. You say, well, I'm just going to check my email real quick before I go to bed or whatever. Next thing you know, an hour, 90 minutes, yeah. two hours later, you're still doing something on your phone or your computer or whatever when you could have been sleeping. Limit the consumption of substances that may impair your sleep quality or quantity, uh, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, chili. Uh, sh- sugar, chili, Yeah, those kinds of things. And we've talked about before this idea of, you know, making sure the last thing you eat or drink, uh, water not included, but anything with calories in it is, you know, at least three hours before you go to bed. You know, that just allows your body to get ready to sleep. Uh, exercise and be physically active. You know, that, that that's part of... But not exercise right before bed, right? Not necessarily, Because no. doesn't that yeah. amp you up? Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of amp you up. It can kind of actually take away your appetite, get you a little fired up, make it difficult to go to sleep. But at some time during the day, look for ways to be active, look for opportunities to exercise, uh, because it it is part of a a natural, healthy, prudent lifestyle that can help you sleep better and learn how to manage your stress and your anxiety. Now, we've talked about how deprived sleep patterns uh, uh, create stress and anxiety, but so maybe one of the ways to manage is, manage that is to help figure out, you know, uh, a, a way to get more sleep in your day. And again, it's about priorities. And I know some people are probably saying, yeah, well, you don't have my job or, well, you don't have my responsibilities. Well, that may be true. And that, that kind of got me thinking about there's kind of this whole craze out there now for people wanting to simplify their lives, minimalist yeah, living. Yeah, right, right. Uh, no wonder they're doing this, right, because this is how they're coping. You know, they want to live in a tiny house. They want to live off the grid. You know, they don't want to be caught up in this rat race 24-7 existence. You know, they want some downtime. And that's something we all should should oh, want. that's such great. Yeah, I mean, really. But you shouldn't have to simplify by just, you know, getting rid of everything. You You could just simplify too by just – getting sleep and yeah. making choices and yeah. getting home and eating a healthier diet. And like you always say, it's your body. People who sleep six, six hours, average six hours or less of sleep a day, 13% higher risk of, of overall mortality of death. That's us right here. Than people who get seven to nine hours See, a day Jeff, on average. We are more likely to die, really. And the show's, you know. And there is no – I mean, obviously, there are minimums and maximums. You can't yeah. say, well, I only need three hours of sleep a night. I'm special. Yeah. That's just not, not, not true. So there is a range, you know, about seven to nine hours, somewhere in that area. Uh, oh, but, I'd but, kill for nine hours. But, but, but nobody's the same, yeah. right? I mean, I have found that when I was younger, I needed about eight. Now I get by on about seven or seven and a yeah. half, uh, you know, and maybe it'll go back up. I mean, I don't know. But you've just got to be aware. You be in tune with yourself. And you've got to learn to, to to treat yourself right. Right. You know, you cannot just keep uh, going, 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 living on five-hour energy no. or whatever uh, and expecting there to be no consequence other than, you know, you have more money or you, you have more success. And eventually, yeah, I'll be able to sleep later. When I retire, I'll be able to sleep. No. Yeah. You may not be able to retire. Or when you die early. Yeah. Right? Well, There's lots, nothing but sleep yeah. when you're dead. Rest in peace. You know. <laughs> Well done. Appreciate you, Dr. Ron Hager is his name. Again, Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Matt. Helping us open. Somebody needs to wake Jeff up. 
We'll take a break. Be right back with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. It's time to shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation as they prepare for their show at the top of the hour. Today, it's Jerem and Brian again. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, what's up, Matt? How you doing, brother? How are you doing? We're doing well. You guys healthy? Well. Brian's back for day two. He'll be here tomorrow as well. Man, Brian's a stud. I saw Brian him walk by my window, and he, I'm pretty sure he was flexing, but he didn't mean to be. Oh, I, I no, 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 Matt. I definitely was. Were you flexing, flexing. on first? I was flexing. And he has a jean jacket on too. And, yeah. I, and I slowed down a little bit. Yeah, I don't did know if you caught it? But I slowed down just a tad. <laughs> hey, bit. I, I thought you were walking kind of slow. Yeah, but yeah. You were ripped, I, man. Just, just a tad bit. How would it be? Hey, we just had our um, health expert in here, and apparently we need ten, uh, nine, or sorry, seven to nine hours of sleep a night. What? I thought it was six hours. No. It's seven to nine minimum. Oh, I need I did eight that. to function well. Do How you? Did that increase? When did that increase? Uh, just, uh, did you not get the memo, Bry? No. The sleep memo. Yeah, they sent it out last month. I didn't get just like how like two yeah. years ago. I didn't know that Pluto like wasn't a planet. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of things you need to get on an AP <laughs> feed. You need to get. You just start, you need to subscribe to a, the UPI. <laughs> I just I just need to follow more. Educated uh-huh, exactly. profiles on Twitter. See exactly. Get educated. Yeah. Just just listen to the Matt Townsend show nine to noon, and then Sports Nation from noon to one. When you're working right. the show, it's a little difficult. Yeah, but when you're not, I could have one earbud in. You normally yeah. do anyway. Do you, do you, yeah, it's always in my ear. Do you guys actually? Do you actually get your eight hours of sleep, uh, Jerem? No, probably in either. the seven ish range, which yeah. is pretty good. I get oh like God. I get six, Maybe if I'm lucky. Sometimes. I go to the gym early in the morning. That's what messes me up. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, you work out? Weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could have never guessed that. <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> oh, it's, I, don't, it I don't know if it's working for you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me that I should hit it harder maybe twice a day? No, I just can't believe like anyone Fowler. would get up early to do that. Does Blaine Fowler work out twice Blaine a day? like twice a day. He's yeah. muscly. Does he really? Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, Blaine, I live. Blaine, Blaine. Blaine's one of the uh, most shredded... Uh, Analysts out there. Yeah, for sure. He, West he, of Brian Logan. Mm-hmm. Wow. I would agree with that statement. You, you need to start having these guys like show their muscles, you know? Blaine does. He'll wear kind of these mm-hmm. mid-bicep shirts to yep. show them off. I'm sure the guns, you're gun show. Extra oh. slim fit. He believes in bearing arms. <laughs> <laughs> does he? Because I'm pretty sure the ratings would soar. Yeah. Except, no, I guess like your viewers are all men. They're, I mean... Do you have? I guess you have some female listeners, right? I mean, that'd be a way to attract more women's. Yeah, we they actually asked us at BYU Radio not to show uh, any pictures of ourselves. Mm. It's kind of like, weird. No video. Yeah, we're no video. Station. No nothing. No. Yeah. So FYI, we're a radio station. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were both. You are both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, um, <laughs> <laughs> any <laughs> alert? Alert. Uh, you guys are still doing the show, though, today, right? Oh, absolutely. As we continue our NFL draft theme. Man. A- okay. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Taysom Hill. Yeah. What is the ideal situation for the graduated BYU quarterback in the NFL? What team does he need to change positions? Huh. Maybe be a safety or a linebacker or a running back or something? We, we will discuss what team and what's the ideal situation. Wow. For his Taysomness. 
for his yeah Taysomdom. Um, is it? I mean, I guess because there's talk, but he also had so many injuries. I'm assuming they'd be worried about his injury prone status. Yeah, yeah, that's in the convo for sure. We'll discuss yeah. how that weighs into that. He'll be 27 when the season starts. Yeah, what? that's another I mean, thing. They, huh? There are there are guys that will have five years in the league. Unbelievable right at 27. You're only a year old. <laughs> you taste him, Hill. Brian. Yeah, you know, maybe it's not too late. Being, being uh, you know, the literally the youngest, one of the youngest guys on the team, and being a senior. That is weird. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Yeah. I had the same problem. I was like the best looking guy on the team. Yeah. Mm. That was weird too. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, it, it, it's weird when socially you go to it's awkward. And, yeah, yeah, of course. When you it's go to the so, parties and all the, the women's are around, yeah, you. and the pretty people, are, and then you show up and it's like, oh, I'm always with the pretty people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. hard. <laughs> um, so you'll talk Taysom Hill. What else is on the show? Plus the latest on uh, mock draft projections for Jamal Williams, Harvey mm. Longy, and where was Kainakua working out over the weekend? What team did he visit? Really? And Fui Vakapuna. Former BYU running back. He's actually the last running back to be drafted. Uh, Harvey Unga was a supplemental draft pick. That's different than what's going to happen this week. So he'll be on the, in studio to talk about the process with Jamal Williams. Uh, and then Peter Quest, the men's individual title uh, winner for the men's golf team. And, a, and an interesting between the lines, Brian, today. Very, with very Lauren interesting. Frankham. Ooh, what did, okay. That's, that's, that's a little teaser. Little teaser there. Uh, um, on did, the set that's not here right now. <laughs> wow, really? Oh, really? So Spencer? Mm. Nailed it! She's trying to break a record of Spencer's, a running record? Mm-hmm. Oh. Not, not Lauren. Oh. A few, a few of BYU Sports Nation fans. People's. Oh. Well, not so pro day. And will there be dirt clods on the ground? Because that became a big impediment oh, for Spencer. I ran uh, an aerated field. Oh, there's lots of dirt clods everywhere. I could have get grip. You could have uh, laid out the terms there. Yeah. You know, he'll have in to my get baggy back. shorts yeah. and my aerated field. Yeah, you he almost yeah. twisted his ankle. Mm. Hey, um, a lot of you know what else? I just want you to check into. I think there might be a lead there. You might want to look on um, Harvey Longy's hair appeared to have exploded. Are you talking about that? Like his draft stock. Like his, like, <laughs> nice. it, it just seemed to have, I don't know, something happened. And it, his hair just life went. After it's called, Boink. he's not in school. Life after Brigham. That's, That's exactly <laughs> what it was. See the, all the beard. Everybody is like 10 years older. Everyone's got a beard. They come back. Yeah. Like, what? A bunch of lumberjacks. They've just been felling trees in the That's forest. right. Is that what the, preparing for the NFL draft does? You get all no gloves. Like 10 years How do you keep the helmet on with that much hair? Sawing wood. <laughs> but the, 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 that, you know, I'm telling you, but when Brian Logan graduated, he he did, he looked the same, but yeah. just ripped. That's because I kept my beard. Brian my was actually earrings. six foot two. <laughs> Yeah. When he graduated from high school. That was weird. He was I six was, two. I was 5'9 uh, when I graduated what? from JC, junior college. <laughs> you kept Seriously? shrinking. Yeah, I was 5'9. And you went down to 5'5 went, five Yeah, I was 6'2 at a high school. I was, at junior college, I was 5'9. Benjamin nine. Button situation. Yeah, wow. and then Bronco, you know, just ruined it all. I'd say that was 5'5. Five, five. You know what the problem is? I think you've been lifting too much. Yeah, it's just no such thing. It's compressing the it's compressing the spinal cord. Lifting yeah. it with your head was a legit issue. Like I don't, I wish someone had told you not to do that. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, um, my mom was just like, make it because you got to make have, it. We don't have money for college. That's right. We, we need to. We need to. We need to make some money. <laughs> okay, guys, have a great show. I can tell it's going to be a good one. Of course, knock them dead. Knock them dead. Peace out, and uh, of course, remember who you are. Hey, speaking of lifting, there is a new. Uh, there's a new king in town. 
And it's not my son, by the way, that just won junior prom queen, junior prom king. I thank you, thank you. He's got his mother's jeans. Yes, I just want to throw that out there. My son Britton Townsend won junior prom king and uh, had to. The, I have to use the word had had to dance with the prom queen, and it was really he didn't. He was embarrassed because a thousand people are watching. Um, So special shout out there. No, but in London, a Durham farmer has has beaten dozens of rivals to the title of world coal carrying champion. Coal carrying. He carries coal. How much coal do you think you could carry? Ooh, I could carry six coal units. That's right. (laughs) This guy uh, carried uh, 50 kilograms is that right 110 pound sack on his back andrew corrigan collapsed on the bed of hay after completing monday's 1.1 kilometer 1200 yard race in a time of four minutes 31 seconds receiving warm applause from the crowd who lined the course the quirky race started in the old mining town in 1963 when a man accused another of looking a bit unfit leading uh, to a race involving a sack of coal. The women's race, in which competitors carried 20 kilograms or 44 pounds, was won by Jen Mustan in 4 minutes and 30 seconds. So they load 50 kilograms of, of coal on their back, and then they have to run um, 1,200 yards. How much coal could a coal carrier carry if a coal carrier could carry coal? Ooh, I almost had it perfectly. You were so close. You must work on that before we do this bit again. Um, I, I, again, I think it's a, I think we ought to try one of our own, like what we ought to, we have a, we have a really weird event that's going on here at BYU Broadcasting. Um, it's not carrying coal, but somebody carries headphones off. They just carry them away. They just take them and carry them off. I could carry at least two dozen headphones at one time. I'm not saying that I did. I mean, you're not saying you did, but, uh, somebody just keeps carrying them off. I mean, it's like, hey, yeah. So you're saying two dozen headphones because Terry was saying he could carry three dozen. Said he could or did? He said he could carry three dozen headphones and 70 little adapters. He's going to need those adapters. He too said he's never done that either. Anyway, a little fun on the side there. Hey, a little hero story for you. A Michigan parolee held as hero after he saves and rescues a three-year-old boy from drowning. While other witnesses stood by and recorded the incident on cell phone, Ron Elko was fishing Sunday in Clinton River with his girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter when he said he heard commotion a short distance away. According to the Detroit News, a woman's 3-year-old son had fallen into the water while he was feeding the ducks with his mom and her male friend. I started running, Elko told the outlet. At first, I thought it was a joke. Somebody had just play, was playing around. Then I saw the kid go underwater. The 36-year-old man, who was paroled from prison in August after being being convicted of drug offenses and retail fraud, said he had no idea how to swim, so he started kicking his feet. Elko was able to get to the toddler and make his way toward the boardwalk, where the young girl he was uh, he had found, he lifted her out of the water. He saved her life. Other people were too busy to help because they were filming the whole thing. Get that thing on YouTube. So anyway, he is the hero of the day. Ron Elko is the hero of the day, and he teaches us that heroes come from all backgrounds. Folks, you're all a hero to us. We'll be back tomorrow. Stick with us. We'll be back bright and early.